0: You're listening to We Thought About Games, the podcast where games are looked at historically, fondly, and critically. I'm your host, Sid Menon, and for tonight's episode, we'll be discussing Ace Combat 5, The Unsung War, also known as Ace Combat 5 Squadron Leader, an arcade flight game developed by Project Aces and published by Namco for the PlayStation 2, and later published by Bandai Namco for the PlayStation 4. Joining me on this episode are Indestructible Cat. Hello. And Bohamchus. Hello. All right, so, iCat, how did you get into Ace Combat 5?
1: Well, I've been following the series since uh, Ace Combat 3, the Western release of Ace Combat 3. And uh, i just been playing every game since then, with the exception of the 360 exclusive.
0: All right, how about you, Bob?
2: Well, back when I was you know, younger, my stepdad bought Ace Combat 5 because he saw a cool game with planes. <laughs> And uh, I ended up playing Ace Combat 5 first. Then I went back and eventually later played the other games, including the uh, Japanese version of Electrosphere. And I'm just a diehard fan of Ace Combat, with the exception of Assault Horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: And for me, I saw the game previewed in PlayStation Magazine, I think. And I was like, oh, I think planes are cool. I grew up in Chicago and they had the Air and Water show there. So, like, yeah, I think jets are cool. I'll get this, and I guess I kind of expected it to just be like a military action game, and then when it had a very dramatic story, I got really pulled in, because if you listen to the previous episode, you know I'm also a big fan of Gundam, and this story is like Gundam, but without people having psychic superpowers to
1: let them fire guns on strings. It is very much, wow, cool planes. (laughs) The only
2: superpower anyone in this
1: combat has is the ability to load like 100
2: missiles onto their plane. (laughs) Yeah, I was also just kind of
0: surprised by the fact that the game was so earnest in tone. In some ways, it could be seen as naive, but I don't know. Especially in an era like a decade that came to be defined by games trying to be so hard and gritty, like Ace Combat Five really did stand out being hopeful. Also, anti-war in two thousand four wasn't super popular.
1: Yeah, I still believe it's one of the few anti-war AAA series left now that Metal Gear is not in the hands of good old Hideo Kojima
2: <laughs> it has a especially precarious place in being an anti-war game with uh equipment licensed from Lockheed Martin
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the thing I wanted to get into before we started the episode in earnest is that yeah this game licenses real-life aircraft even though it's in a fictional setting for the sake of accuracy and you know thinking that planes are cool and that it's
1: Kinda uncomfortable. You really need to like forget about it. Not that the game makes it easy, considering it's like one of the first things that pops up when you start the game.
2: The general sort of feel of Ace Combat is uh war is bad, but planes are good.
0: <laughs> but whatever cut that Lockheed Martin got from Namco for the Ace Combat 5 license, I mean compared to how much of my tax money they're getting to build planes that don't work. It's a structural problem that you can't solve by not buying Ace Combat. Not that it absolves you or anything, or saying you don't have to be conscientious of the fact that it is using real planes.
1: I feel like it's okay to like just like the series, but also condemn the use of real-world weaponry in it.
0: Yeah. Alright, and with that out of the way, let's get into the development history. Bo, take it away.
2: Not too long after Ace Combat 4, in 2002, at the Tokyo CG Festival, they announced Ace Combat 5 uh, in 2002. Prior to this point, Project Aces didn't actually exist as, a, as an internal development team at Namco. Uh, instead, it was just Namco. But in 2003, they decided to form Project Aces officially, and that's when you would see them listed on Ace Combat 5, Zero, and onward as Project Aces. And while they did have the sort of, you know, cockpit view and, you know, more realistic view for Ace Combat 4 for the first time, like, they literally got in the plane and modeled it. So, you know, you had cockpit views, top speeds, all sorts of general avionic performance. That was all being modeled after the real-life counterparts. After a relatively short dev period for the time, the game was released in October of 2004. And, I mean, it received pretty good reviews, despite being, you know, sort of unrealistic. So this was uh, Kazutoki Kono, his first overall directing role in the series. He did uh, art direction on Ace Combat 4. You would see a lot of his artistic choices in the cutscenes. And he did a lot of the visual work on Ace Combat 2. Ace Combat 1 and 2 are a lot less integral, I guess, to the overall series than, you know, say, 3 and 4. The soundtrack in 2 is fucking great. The
1: soundtrack in 2 is amazing. It's impossible to bring up these games without bringing up their soundtracks.
2: If you want to get like a really good feel for Ace Combat 2's soundtrack, go look up Dinopolis. Mm-hmm. That is like the track, I would say, for Ace Combat 2. So they were able to model the environments in Ace Combat 5 after uh, satellite imagery of real-world environments. For example, which we'll talk about later on, White Bird Part 1. That general area, besides the space elevator, uh, was actually modeled around an area in rural Japan. So, like, Ace Combat 2, 3, and 4 all take place in what we call Strange Real." We'll get to that in a second. They've got sort of an interconnected plot. 3 takes place way after 4 and 5. But, like, up to this point, it had been more of a, you know, an art, sort of like a set dressing. But with Ace Combat 5, they really brought the story to the forefront and uh, all this came together to make Ace Combat 5 a US million seller you know it's not something that the, uh, the previous one had to accomplish
1: yeah I don't believe they even got a million seller after that
2: speaking of Ace Combat Zero the, uh, the cinematics in Ace Combat 5 uh, they were directed by the same person as Ace Combat Zero that's uh, Kosuke Itome
0: yeah cinematics directed by Kosuke Itome later the overall game director for Ace Combat Zero
2: soundtrack by Keiichi Kobayashi and they do fantastic work
0: yeah, so the music director and also one of the contributors to the soundtrack was Keiki Kobayashi. And then Tetsukazu Nakanishi was the sound director and also contributed to the soundtrack. And then there were two other people who mainly contributed, Junichi Nakatsu and Hiroshi Okubo. I tried to listen to the soundtrack to find some common threads. And they do have some things that separate them, but for having four composers, the sound is very consistent. It's not always the same. Genre, but you could listen to and even say that sounds like Ace Combat. It also features two original vocal songs The Journey Home, which was written by Katsuro Tajima and performed by the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra, along with The Unsung War. The Journey Home has two different vocal versions with lyrics in English, and The Unsung War has a Latin chorus. This was all pretty heavy stuff for namco at the time it took them three years total to compose and develop the soundtrack making it the most expensive namco soundtrack of the time it is a fantastic soundtrack it is also the first one to feature a licensed song blurry by puddle of mud uh... <laughs> yep the boys who wrote she fucking hates me a <laughs> track
3: on this oh boy.
0: yeah it was weird in 2004 it's really weird now this is a band that has section on wikipedia called lip-syncing and other controversies followed by connection with fred durst
1: (laughs) i really need to know the connection to fred durst now apparently
0: signed on their label and helped them and then the lead singer said no he never helped us and then got in trouble and then years later said he actually helped us a lot the lead singer seems like a huge jerk it
2: <laughs> gotta be like a special kind of asshole if I didn't be seen as unfavorable by comparison to Fred. <laughs> like.
0: And just the last couple of credits for this. The screenplay was by Sunao Katabuchi, whose only other writing credits are the FMV sequences in Shining Force Neo, and then later did the story for Ace Combat 7. Those are the only writing credits, which is kind of surprising considering the quality of the story. Hey folks, post-edit Sid here. I should note that these are Tsuno Katabuchi's only game writing credits. In between Ace Combat 5 and Ace Combat 7, he worked as the writer and director on the anime series Black Lagoon. And the translation was handled by Kevin Gifford and D. Scott Miller and edited by John McGiarty. His name might be familiar because the year after Ace Combat 5 came out, he founded 8.4, the studio responsible for translations, such as the one for Nier and Dragon Sogma.
1: I believe they also translated Undertale to Japanese, didn't they? Yeah, they did.
0: Alright, so we mentioned the game being in a fictional setting called Strange Real. Kazutoki Kono was asked about this, and he said, We coined the term Strange Real World when we were making the world of 4 using improper English grammar, but coined it we did. From that point on, for whatever reason, it became established to users around the world as strange real. For that reason, true strange real is what we call the world based on 4 from which the number titles have stemmed. The advantage of this setting is that it allows them to tell a story in a relatable real world without the baggage of real world politics, which can often be a uncomfortable sticking
2: point. And this is why they would do this. The salt horizon, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Where it became an uncomfortable sticking point. Oops. The biggest changes in terms of the layout of the world is that in the space that would be the Pacific Ocean, there's the Eugian continent. The planet is still within the games referred to as Earth. I don't know if this is maybe a translation or story writing slip up, but there'll be references to real countries in it. So Let's always say I'm to go get Italian food later or a plane's description will say it's a Russian design. It's like, what's Italy?
1: What's Russia? <laughs> in the world where Spain is known as Soppen. <laughs> <laughs> I think they could have easily just made it in Italy, I don't know.
0: Yeah, there are some things that are very close and some things that are a little more different. They actually designed Strange Reel for Ace Combat 4, but it was only a little different. And then in Ace Combat 5, if you look at the world map, it's actually been really overhauled and is now its own entity. And the big event in the backstory of the world of Strange Reel that shaped it was a giant meteor called Ulysses 1994 XF-04. It's using an actual naming convention. And it collided with the planet in 1999. And it killed half a million people. It displaced one million people, destroyed multiple urban areas, and caused a massive refugee crisis. And while none of that's specifically referenced within the game, it is important to why countries do certain things. It's the kind of detail where if you see it afterwards, you say, okay, that makes sense. It's, you know, the kind of thing that they sometimes fail to do with games set in the real world about why they do things
1: they do. Funny you should bring that up because I think Ace Combat Infinity, the uh, free to play one, has the real world, but the Ulysses still like crashed into the planet. So it's mm-hmm. the same thing, but with real world countries and it's. Strange. Strange Stonehenge. real, even.
2: <laughs> you see a lot of the stuff that countries use to deal with Ulysses in their own way. In Ace Combat 4, you have to deal with Stonehenge, which is a big battery of guns that they were going to use to shoot down fragments of Ulysses, and they turn it into a weapon.
1: I think we do have to bring up the fact there are super weapons in this universe. There were some super
0: weapons beforehand, but the fact that they had to push technology so far to find a way to deal with this incoming threat is why there are so many different kinds of super weapons. Before we get into discussing the main modes of the game, we want to discuss how it plays because it's not the most underserved genre by a long shot, but it is pretty likely that you haven't played
1: one. The most common flight game I've seen people play is probably Microsoft Flight Sim.
0: Yeah, and that is a simulator not in arcade style game
1: ace combat
2: as a series you know it has some level of simulation aspect to it real planes can't hold 100 missiles they can only hold (laughs) like four
0: yeah you'll hear people call out that you're firing fox 2 like 10 times in a mission should be on like fox 25 by now but okay (laughs) so the first aspect is the controls and There are actually two different modes for the controls, so that even if you're kind of uncomfortable with the already abstracted flight model of the normal controls, is an even easier version. With the novice controls, logically, left moves left, right will turn you right, and down will move you up, and then up will move you down. It's a genre standard. You can change it if you like. You don't really have to think about it much, whereas if you're on normal controls, left will roll the plane left like you'll spin left and then down will move you up and up will move you down but now instead of turning by just pressing left you spin the plane so that when you press down or up you will turn in that direction when i first played the game i played on novice controls because i tried normal controls i'm like why would i ever do this but it does give you more flexibility just a little bit more actually i discovered but it can be a pretty big difference to your play experience
2: On normal controls, you use the uh, R1 and L1 buttons to yaw, which is the uh, avionic term for turning. You know, once you get used to it, pretty easy. If you hold both of the bumpers, it puts you in autopilot mode, it'll level you out. Which
0: is quite useful because it's very easy when you can spin all over the place to kind of lose your sense of direction. So using autopilot will realign you with the horizon. The other set of shoulder buttons are your accelerate and decelerate. Once you accelerate for a while, if your controller has vibration function, it'll vibrate when you hit Afterburner, which means you're not going to gain any more acceleration. You'll still gain speed, but your rate of acceleration will not change. Then you can decelerate with the other one. This is important to maintain your flight speed because you need to maintain control for when you fight other planes. If you zip by them, you want to decelerate as you turn. And also, if you're on normal controls, yaw like, upwards so that you're fighting gravity more so that you don't move as far while you're turning so you can make a tighter turn whereas if you're on novice controls you can decelerate and turn and it's okay but it's not as fast so you kind of have to make wider arcs to turn and face a target
2: you gotta also be careful about your speed because if you if your speed is too low or your uh, rate of climb is too high you will enter a stall your plane is not generating lift and will start to fall out of the sky which is obviously bad <laughs> the faster you're going obviously you're going faster but you won't be able to turn as effectively the slower you're going you'd be able to turn better but you might start falling
0: yeah and if you hit a stall you just have to jam on the accelerator and try and get back to full speed so that you can pick up
2: again yeah uh, angle your nose up start accelerating and you'll you'll get yeah, out of the stall pretty easy
0: yeah So if you're taking tight turns and you're close to the ground, you'll want to maybe not do that, because if you stall, you might not recover your speed before you crash. In later games, you can hit the ground and just take a huge chunk of damage but survive. In this, crashes are just 100% fatal. You will instantly die. You have to be careful when you're flying around obstacles and attacking ground targets.
2: And uh, even then, Ace Combat 7, surviving a crash... You have to be at a really specific angle going at a very specific speed. Mm -hmm.
0: You have your square button, which controls your radar, which is kind of weird. It uses the PS2's pressure sensitivity for how far the radar zooms out. They change this in later games, but in 5, you have to press down the button with a certain level of pressure to affect the zoom. And it's kind of awkward, but usually you don't have to change it too rapidly in gameplay to assess the situation.
1: Even playing the emulated version, I didn't see much use of having the three different maps. I think you would use the most immediate one, then the wide one when trying to go find faraway targets.
2: Ace Combat 5 doesn't have a whole lot of like big furballs like Ace Combat 6 would later have. The most common use of the larger zoomed out map is just can't find any enemies where they're at.
0: And then you have a button to switch targets. I don't really understand entirely how it cycles because it won't always go for things right in front of you. I think it's how close they are to you, but in like a radial pattern.
1: I believe so. I mean, that would seem the most accurate. It's sorted by magic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would say there are some times where I had to kind of strategize around the fact that I wouldn't switch always to targets I wanted to. Kind of a bummer, but surprisingly in a game that can be this fast, it's not terrible. It's just not ideal.
1: It's an annoyance.
0: Yeah. And then your X button and circle button are for your weapons. X button fires your machine gun. You have to be within about 750 meters of the target. You can choose between metric or standard measurement systems. And I put things in metric because I'd like to believe in another world that we would never use
2: standard measurement systems. (laughs)
1: Also, the game is very nice in that the HUD also lets you know when you're close enough.
2: Yeah, it'll, uh, it'll show you your cone of fire. Basically, a little circle will appear on your HUD.
1: Yeah, and machine guns
0: are unlimited on normal and below for those difficulties, and becomes limited on higher difficulties. And circle button is what you'll mainly use to fire missiles. And this is the main way you'll be engaging targets in this game, The way that these work is kind of what makes regular dogfighting so engaging in ace combat, is that you have to have a good angle and trajectory on the enemy for the missile to hit. Because it'll track them a certain amount and a certain distance, but after that it just goes on its own. So if an enemy can outmaneuver it, you won't hit them. If you're at the wrong angle, it'll fly right past them. And you usually need one missile for a lot of soft ground targets and helicopters, and for larger targets or most planes, you'll need two missiles.
1: We joke about the hundred missiles, but you're gonna need them.
0: That circle button can also be used for special weapons. You just press the select button and you'll switch to your plane's assigned special weapon. Each plane gets one. And these can be a whole assortment of things. Like your first plane has unguided bombs. It's just for ground targets. You'll see a little targeting point and you'll want to line it up with that and fire. Some are special types of missiles for say, air-to-air combat. Like, this one will go extra range, this one targets four targets at
1: once.
2: This one is a quick-maneuver air-to-air missile and is basically its
1: <laughs> And we can't forget the biggest gameplay feature. If you hold on circle while shooting missile, you switch to a different camera that lets you see the cool bomb.
0: I never do that, because, like, I'm always doing some risky flying, and if I'm not looking at my plane, I
2: will crash. <laughs> I always do it. <laughs> it's a cool thing to do, Uh, it has gotten me killed in Ace Combat 7 more times than I can count. (laughs) For whatever reason, they let you still do it in multiplayer and that's probably the worst place to
0: do it. For the aircraft you're flying, they all have different stats and stuff like maneuverability, you'll learn by feel how much each value is worth. You can fly a plane with this level of maneuverability and then you'll say like, okay, this seems about normal for the F5, my starting plane. And then you switch to something like the a6e which is a big bombing plane and you'll say okay going down by this much maneuverability is bad and the a6e is bad you shouldn't use it and i hate it (laughs) the planes themselves are classified into fighter which means primarily geared towards air-to-air combat attacker which means geared towards ground combat and multi-role which means both these planes have air-to-air and air-to-ground values assigned to them as both a general guide for its effectiveness and also for later in the game when you are choosing which planes to use on what mission. There's an expected level of force the enemy has that's indicated on the hangar screen. Ideally, you want to reach that level with the planes you select, but you can do any mission in any plane. I wouldn't always recommend it, but you can do any mission in any plane.
1: (laughs) I mean, when the game really wants you to use a particular style of plane, it'll let you know, like, during mission briefings. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And we mentioned that there are, you know, air and ground targets, like soft ground targets would be things like anti-air guns or SAMs, surface-to-air missiles. Generally with types of enemies, you'll learn over time which types they are by their model number, because that's how all the targets are generally sorted. So you'll see AH AH-64, is like, oh, it's an attack helicopter, CH is a combat chopper. You know, this is an F-15E, so it's a jet, so it's going to take two missiles, and this will help you over time develop a sense of just how you should be prioritizing your targets depending on whether you're defending something or trying to destroy a certain amount of targets in a certain amount of time. Each target has a point value as well, which figures into this game's kill rate system. With certain planes, they have a meter in their name in the hangar. And as you defeat targets, which are valued based on what the target is and what difficulty you're on, you'll fill that gauge and once it fills up you will unlock the next plane in that tree of planes later on you'll gain the ability to use wingman commands these are tied to your d-pad you can use them to order your wingman to attack which will attack the target in front of you that you have targeted cover which means they'll generally try to keep enemies off your tail disperse which means they'll spread through the area and then there's another button that's a toggle for whether they can use their special
1: weapons or not i
0: always toggle
1: it on (laughs)
0: Why not?
1: (laughs) I always kept mine in Disperse, personally. It was weird. When I played the game the first time
0: on normal, with novice controls, I felt like the wingmen didn't do anything. Like, I really think they didn't do anything. (laughs) But then when I played the game recently on hard with normal controls, I found that they actually did help a lot. I wonder if it's tied to the difficulty, how good their AI is. Which is why a lot of reviews would say, oh, it seemed like the wingmen didn't do anything that would line up because they probably didn't play on hard their first time.
1: Yeah, Uh, like for this recent playthrough, I played on hard and they definitely um, start helping out. There been times where they stole a kill from me, but I'm not salty about that.
0: (laughs) And we've been mentioning the difficulty levels. There's Novice, which is ridiculously easy. I kind of wouldn't recommend playing on it at all. (laughs) I feel like you would barely get anything plus on lower until these enemies are worth less kill rates, so it would take you maybe the whole game to fill those meters.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, like uh if anything I would recommend novice just as like you play the first few missions on it so that you can get a uh, hang of the controls and then move up to normal. And normal is a
0: is a pretty fair way to play. I think there will be some parts that are still tough, but it ramps up, I think, appropriately. Whereas hard, I think alleviates a lot of issues with feeling like the game is too easy, but there are parts where it can be very difficult and the fact that this game does not have checkpointing in it can really
1: great. If I were going by intended experience, normal would be good for your first playthrough and every subsequent playthrough and maybe even other games I would just go with hard. Yeah, except this
0: combat 7. Ace combat 7 on normal is so difficult. <laughs> It is so difficult.
2: Yeah, it's Combat 7. You need all those extra fancy maneuvers that they added because otherwise you will get hit by the 30 trillion missiles they are firing <laughs> at you every second.
0: And maybe that's that sound bad, I, I actually kind of enjoy the stress.
2: Oh, it's it's really good. It's uh, super tense. It doesn't feel like you're just going to like waltz through combat and when people start talking about you like you're a legend, it's because you know you're actually avoiding some incredibly hairy situations.
0: So before we discuss the story mode, this game does include a mode called arcade mode. And yes, the whole game is arcadey, but arcade mode is very arcadey and it is a sequel to Ace Combat 4.
1: You play a good old Mobius One. Totally it's so different from the game
0: because it's just got like rocking music. There's no gravitas or anything like that. No pathos, just We've determined that Mobius 1 is as effective as an entire fighter squadron, so we're sending just Mobius 1 to destroy this uprising of people from the last war who are still trying to disrupt the peace that you achieved.
2: So like, Ace Combat 5 has like a very grounded feel for how each person is, and then the arcade mode is like, Mobius 1 is God incarnate and will kill everyone <laughs> on Earth.
1: <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess that's me. <laughs> They call him the Grim Reaper in 4, but uh, this is where that name actually makes a ton more sense. (laughs) The
0: way Arcade Mode is laid out is that there are different routes for stages. So you complete one stage and you can pick, I think it's higher routes are easier and lower routes are more difficult. Your main limiting factor is that you have to destroy certain targets within missions to get more time or ammo. The missions are, I feel like they're not that memorable individually. They are good. It's fun but it is more of like that rush of an arcade experience that you would maybe get from playing like air combat 22 or ace combat 2 or something
2: like that you get a choice of levels to do but mostly what that determines is just like do you shoot down this type of enemy or do you shoot down you know the different type of enemy (laughs) yeah
1: i mean the combat in this game is solid enough that i think the standard arcade mode is still worth going through well it's
2: worth going through for a different reason as well because if you beat arcade mode you get the f-22 which is absurd if you then start the main game
0: well you have to do all of the stages on all the routes to get it but yeah then you get the fa-22a raptor which in real life is a stealth plane that doesn't work if it gets wet in the rain because the canopy cracks and it cost a billion (laughs) dollars thanks guys But in this fictional, fantastical world, the FA-22A is one of the best planes. (laughs) And you normally only unlock it once you beat mission 17 out of 30. I would recommend not doing all of arcade modes.
2: Play arcade mode after you beat the story.
1: Yeah.
0: We mentioned the composers who worked on various tracks. They also contributed to the arcade mode soundtrack, and it is tonally, like, if you play Dynasty Warriors, it sounds like that. The tracks have names like Elemental Particle 2 and Catch the
1: Lightning. <laughs> if Puddle of Mud showed up in arcade mode, it would be a lot more totally consistent.
0: Well, not blurry. <laughs> blurry would be way inconsistent. I also don't want to hear any of their music. But it has so much soul.
2: Yeah, arcade mode is just the Dynasty Warriors of Ace Combat, though. So.
0: <laughs> That's that for arcade mode, and now we're finally going to get to the story mode. <laughs>
2: There's an aspect of this
0: game, like the dialogue can be kind of flowery about the nature of war, but there is a level of naturalism to it, and that people don't, when they first show up, find an excuse to say that person's name. And when you're playing through the game, it's not confusing, because they always make it pretty clear who is who. So even if you don't know the base commander's name, you'll know who he is, and then when they say his name, like, okay, that's his name. But for the sake of this, we'll name people as they show up, because this isn't a visual medium at all (laughs) (laughs) this game is mostly narrated by a photojournalist named albert Jeanette, voiced by matt mercer and the game kicks
4: off with a prologue 15 years ago there was a war well war's broken out here plenty of times before they've tried to invade the southlands through the northern valley time and time again Luck was never on their side, though, and their victories didn't last long. They didn't realize that times had changed. Facing one defeat after another, losing territory and watching their nation dwindle, they built up their industrial strength to unprecedented heights and used it to wage one final battle against the world. That was 15 years ago. fought ferociously, but were utterly defeated. The belkans then committed the unthinkable. They used nuclear weapons on their own soil. Seeing this tragedy unfold before their own eyes, the victorious countries vowed to throw down their weapons. The world was once again at peace. And thanks to them, it seemed it would last forever. On a distant island, far away from civilization, the protectors of the peace take to the skies.
0: So after that intro, we see that Jeanette is in a plane with a pilot named Jack Bartlett with the call sign Heartbreak One. He's voiced by Steve Bloom. Back again, baby. He's in everything. And he is a veteran of that previous Balkan war, and he's famous for turning rookies into aces. but. They've been attacked during a training exercise by unidentified enemies. He sends some of them away from the action below, and with the rest of his team moves up. Jeanette passes out during this dogfight. The next scene is them on the ground, walking away from the plane, and Jeanette reveals that the rookies in that area down below away from the fight were actually moved directly in the enemy's line of fire because the command room, as he says, misplaced some zeros. The other instructors also died. The only remaining pilot is the trainee, K Nagase, call sign Edge, voiced by Karen Strassman. She promises to not get killed, and Jeanette finds her very interesting by her seemingly very quiet demeanor that she survived this really awful battle. But after taking a photo of her, Jeanette reveals that his gear has been confiscated by the base, and he has been confined to the base because they want to keep everything under arrest. The remaining members of Bartlett's squadron, War Dog, are joined by Alvin Davenport, whose call sign is Chopper, and he's voiced by Eddie Freerson, and you, the player, whose call sign is
1: Blaze.
2: You're voiced by the D-pad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do love how uh, Lucky O'Sea was in just having three aces not go into this ridiculously terrible training mission that got everyone killed.
0: Mhm. And so after all that introduction, you get
1: Mission 1,
0: Shorebirds. The briefings in this game, this is actually a detail I didn't appreciate at the time because I played it on a CRT television. But they actually put a lot of effort into making the presentation of these displays a very CRT-like. They have the test pattern. They have the fuzz on them and stuff. It's, it's really cool. Like when you see it on an HD display, you can appreciate the amount of work they put into capturing it, which is impressive because... A lot of people at the time probably saw TVs and were like, that's just how things look. Like, you wouldn't really try to recreate
2: that. I mean, they they look just chef kiss, you know? It's great.
0: (laughs) Not to mention the soundtrack for the briefing. It's got this, like, sweet slap bass. It's playing under this part right now as we're talking, but it's such a good briefing theme. And, like I mentioned in the near episode, the person giving the briefing... Well, there's a character who gives a briefing, the base commander, Orson Perro. But when you get into mission details... Those are all voiced by Jameson Price. Yeah. It's so great. Should be noted though that Jameson Price will voice all of the mission briefing details in this game, even when it couldn't be the same person. When you're in like different bases or different command situations. It is always him, and he does speak with like a voice. He's not a computer or something.
2: They got the special future Jameson Price AI that tells you (laughs) about the mission. Yeah, he's like Hatsune Miku. i want a jameson price vocal oh
0: yeah for this mission an unidentified spy plane has entered ocean airspace and has been damaged by anti-air defenses and your job is to go out there and underbar this command request that the plane lands before the mission starts on the loading screen you see an exit from a poem that says amidst the eternal waves of time from a ripple of change shall the storm rise out of the abyss peer the eyes of a demon. Behold the rosgrees, its wings of black sheep. Which is so metal. Without any context, like, why am I seeing this? But okay, it's cool. I don't mind some cool black metal lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it'll come to be more important later. But uh, when the mission begins, you are told by the AWACS, that's the air warning and control system, AWACS callsign Thunderhead, voiced by Kirk Thornton, who you might have heard if you played as Jaho Duin in like Dynasty Warriors 8. He was also in a Gundam side story on the Dreamcast, along with Steve Bloom.
2: One of many many dad voices in voice acting.
0: <laughs> he flies in the F-5E Tiger II. This is the only plane you can use until Mission 5. Very definition of the most standard plane. And its special weapon is an unguided bomb, so you're not going to use it on this mission. But when you have to go up against ground targets, it's a good thing to get you in the mode for fighting using your special weapons and differentiating between the two
2: it's not like a terribly like big system but it's the first time where like you can respond to your teammates talking to you they usually ask you little yes and no questions and it'll pop up on the screen whenever you get a prompt you know you'll have a yes on left
1: on the d-pad and no on the right the game also gives you the option of just not answering and they do comment on that every now and then
0: there are occasions later when you're given command where a yes or no option will serve as giving a command to like disperse. The good thing about this is that saying yes isn't always the right
1: answer. <laughs> it's strange, because the game asks you questions that clearly you should have a clear answer to, but you can out answer the opposite, and the game just pretends that oh yeah, wow, you saw it somehow. Okay.
0: Sometimes you'll say no and be like it'd be a really dick move to say no to this person, you say no, and they'll be like what the hell? But other times it seems like they just assume you have good intentions, so it's like, I don't know if we can make it through this, and you say, like, no, and they're like, yeah, I agree, it's really tough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the questions range from weirdly philosophical yes or no questions to, have you listened to this song?
0: (laughs) There's also a lot of incidental dialogue in this game, that's one of the other things that keeps the campaign very interesting, is that even when you're engaging in the gameplay, it does shift depending on situations, but Generally, you know, you're lining up your shots, you're getting in the groove trying to get to different places on the map. There's always dialogue from either you or you can even hear enemy communications, sort of. It's fuzzy how much of that is treated as, like, you can canonically
1: hear that. I think the assumption is that the um, enemy chatter in this game, the player can hear it, but the characters in the story cannot. For
0: now, like, you just get some dialogue between... Bartlett, and he'll ask you some yes or no questions. He says the state formation, you say yes. He's like, good boy. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> but he asks Chopper to get the spy plane to land, and instead of responding, a bunch of fighters show up. It's just a small formation, so it's pretty lightweight. Even on higher difficulties, this
2: isn't so bad. It's like, I think, five or six enemies. It's not terribly hard. If you're really good at it, you can actually defeat all of the enemies before all the dialogue is exhausted. Mm-hmm. And like, you're, you're supposed to not fire back. Thunderhead told you not to, but plain daddy Bartlett decides you can fire back.
1: Yeah, a running theme in this game is people not following their orders.
2: There's a lot of insubordination in this game.
1: <laughs> After the
0: mission, the spy plane attempts to do an emergency landing, but blows up. And Bartlett gives Blaze the nickname Kid. The events of the mission are classified because the nearest base across the ocean is from the country of Yugdabania, who were allies with Osea during the Balkan War, so raising that suspicion now would be very strange. The mechanic shows up during the scene afterwards, named Pops, voiced by Bob Pappenbrook, the father of voice actor Bryce Pappenbrook, and reveals that uh, Bartlett's old flame is Yugdabanian, and that's why... His nickname is Heartbreak One. And then you get mission two, Open War. A spy ship has been spotted off the coast of your base on Sand Island, and it has launched recon drones. So you have to shoot down the drones and not damage the ship. But when you shoot down the drones, you get ambushed. Once again, firing against orders. Pretty straightforward mission, but it is the first instance of where you hear
1: enemy radio chatter. The real curveball of this mission is just near the end, where Captain Bartlett intercepts a missile directed towards Edge and is shot down.
0: He ejects from his plane and a rescue helicopter gets sent for him, but the rest of War Dog has to return to base because it's revealed that Yuktabani had declared war on them. <laughs> that takes you into mission 3, Narrow Margin. Jeanette reveals that he got his gear back because Captain Hamilton, the adjutant base commander under Perot, tells him Yuktavani launched a surprise attack on their ports. So now that it's out, all the photos he's taken and all the information he has is not any surprise. Yeah, Narrow Margin's the first mission that I think that stands out more, where you have to assist all these ships getting out of the harbor, but they've been surprise attacked and it's chaos.
1: I think it's also the first mission where you're allowed to give squad orders, after Bartlett is shot down, Edge is supposed to take over as leader of the squadron, but she defers to you, the player, to give commands.
2: Also, it's the first mission where the objective of the mission is not necessarily to defeat every enemy. Yeah. You're probably going to. The whole thing is there's a uh, an aircraft carrier, the test you have to defend as it leaves.
0: And you're assisted by the lead pilot. From the Kestrel Captain Snow, who's called Sinus Swordsman, and he is voiced by Bo Billingsley.
2: So uh so
1: Spite Speedle and Jet Black are <laughs> <laughs> I feel like most of the Cowboy bebuff cast is in this game, actually.
0: Yeah, it's a tight crew. I think most of them are in Gundam Rise from the Ashes on Dreamcast. Also there's a cutaway scene in this where you just get a black screen and Chopper narrates that light from the fire of the crash jet reveals that they're a bunch of dead bodies floating in the water <laughs> suddenly shit got dark i kind of feel like there's no version of this scene where there's anything there
1: but it kind of feels like maybe originally they were
0: going to have a visual of this and then they cut it because it would have kicked the
1: age rating up from teen to mature <laughs> most of the mission has stuff like your allies accidentally shooting each other because they couldn't identify enemies there's just a lot of a darker subject matter that only comes through through the um, audio
0: yeah i think having an audio is okay by the Reading board's determination also i was kind of confused because the cadence chopper speaks in here is not the one he talks with most of the time so i didn't know it was him i'm like who is
1: talking the chopper for that one cutscene is more serious than he is for the rest of the game
0: mm-hmm. upon completing the mission you find that the kestrel and three other ships have successfully left the port and the captain of the kestrel captain anderson thanks everyone for escaping
1: I would also say this is the first mission where it becomes clear that the checkpoints in this game are not great.
2: Literally if you fail the mission, you gotta start from the start. For a first time player, you know, this is a pretty big mission. Like there's a lot of enemies and, you know, there's variants and targets. You know, there's gonna be stuff on you know on the water, there's stuff, you know, in the air. They're both gonna be shooting at you at the same time. It's a big jump in difficulty. This is probably the first time you you might
1: maybe did a game over. It's also clearly cut into two separate parts. Like, there's the first part where you're helping the ships get out of the dock. Then there's defending them while on sea.
2: It's clear in a lot of places that they could have put checkpoints in, but they didn't. I think the
0: biggest loss there is hearing the same dialogue, even though it's good and it's well-translated. Like, here at the same time, you'll start repeating it alongside the characters and just be like, "Uh uh-huh, get on with it. Like, you can skip specific cutscenes but in game moments when there's dialogue playing you can't obviously skip that because you're in control but there are moments like that where you're in control but you're not really facing any hazards
2: it's one of those things where if you're doing well and you've played a mission before you may be just stuck in the air doing loops it's not as egregious in these earlier missions but there are some missions later on where like nothing happens for a little bit and you're just Mm -hmm. listening to to chatter and that's one of the few things i would say is kind of to Ace Combat 5's detriment. Yeah, because I
0: think maybe even after playing 7, I think 5 is the best in the series overall in all aspects. And I think in terms of games we've covered on the show, it is one of the highest quality games, but it's not perfect. The fact that the checkpointing is non-existent can really bite sometimes, but getting through it is still satisfying
2: to compare, Ace Combat 7 has actually pretty great checkpointing.
0: Mm -hmm. Five also, the graphic quality of the planes is pretty solid. Pretty much everything else is kind of muddy and doesn't look that good.
2: Yeah, that's that's PS2 stuff. Even Ace Combat 0, which came out later, still had kind of muddy environments. It's very obvious what you're supposed to be focusing
1: on. I would say the thing that's dated to me right now is the cutscenes.
2: Yeah, they, they have that sort of PS2...
1: Yeah, I'd say that, but in terms of
2: direction, they're still
0: top-notch.
2: As far as like PS2 goes, they look pretty good.
0: I mean, this is Namco at the top of their game in terms of aesthetics. This is the era of Tekken 5 and Ridge Racer 5 and Soul Calibur 3. Soul Calibur
2: 3, yeah. They're really pushing the envelope on the, uh, on the PS2, and this does not change for Ace Combat 5 or Zero. There's a cutscene in Ace Combat Zero where it shows a close-up of your enemy's plane, and honestly, if you showed me that model of that plane, if I had not played Zero and you showed it to me today, I would assume it's from a PS4 game.
1: I think Zero made a slightly better decision in just having real-life actors just portray these characters instead of the um, models they have for five.
2: It does have like the most obvious ADR in the universe, though. <laughs> yeah.
0: We actually get that kind of strange disconnect between not using real actors but using real-world music. First, they mentioned that Bartlett was not found when they went to go rescue him, which they had to do later. Just the enemy intelligence vessel retreating. It becomes clear that Sand Island, which is very distant from the rest of Osea, is going to become the front line of defense against Yuktabania. When Jeanette and Chopper talk about this, it's right at the chorus of Blurry by Puddle of Mud. (laughs)
1: chopper and i quote says i love this sound (laughs) yeah he's like oh i love rock and rolls like i I don't know
0: it i mean i guess technically you could say they are rocking and rolling but
1: to blurry the song that thinks about having like a being a distant father or something (laughs) Chopper's weird in that they say he listens to a lot of rock and roll but i also can believe that he just listens to blurry on repeat every (laughs) day.
0: In the notes for this outline, uh, I can't put that there's an actual animated dog in this cutscene. Seven has the infamous JPEG dog, which was not actually a still image of a dog. The dog was just told to sit still, and he did. Completely. (laughs) Rest in peace.
1: Ah, rest in peace. Ace combat dog.
0: But yeah, this dog is Chopper's dog, Kirk. Chopper also reveals that base commander Perro is suspicious of Bartlett because his ex is Yuktabonian, and now he's vanished when Yuktabonia attacks. But as soon as this comes up, you get hit with an air raid. And instead of a briefing, you get to do a takeoff minigame, which is new to this. Really pretty simple, but it's mostly there for set dressing.
1: Fairly easy to pull off. You just really just need to push down on the stick and you're pretty much good to go. Unlike uh,
0: later takeoff sequences, mostly because those missions are further away, this immediately transitions you right into combat. And you need to stop a bunch of bombers targeting the base runway.
2: There's literally a part where you're taking off and, like, you look out the side of your canopy and see bombs blowing up. This one's also
0: a pretty intense mission. Also, the music is good, but it reminds me of the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it does. The music in this mission is a remix of uh, a track from Ace Combat 4. It's a lot more, like, bumping in Ace Combat 4. <laughs>
1: Also, I love the chatter in this one. They were having a replacement commander for Wardog come during this particular mission, and he's like, I'm going to take over, and is immediately shot down.
0: (laughs) And no one cares, because they all hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Also, mid-mission, Ops takes off in a transport plane, because there's a bunch of volatile supplies like ammo and such on the base that they need to get away from there. And as he takes off from the transport plane away from the battle, Hans Grimm, with the call sign Archer
1: voiced by Johnny Young
0: Bosch, doing a kind of nerdy voice. Not an annoying one, I don't think.
1: Yeah, Johnny Young Bosch is in this series a lot, and you can tell when it's him. He voices PJ in Ace Combat Zero, and I am surprised they actually allowed him to voice another major character. <laughs> he is a
0: replacement pilot trainee, so he hasn't even finished all his certifications yet, but Bartlett's spare plane was in the hangar. He requested that they get it ready, when he thought he's going to be rescued. He gets in that plane and takes off. And you have to defend him from being blown up on the runway, and then once he takes off, he joins you. The big point of this mission is Grim joining you, and actually doing pretty well, despite being a trainee, so he's immediately promoted to a full member. The base takes minimal damage, except for Chopper's Rock and Roll Final.
2: Ah, uh, rest in peace, Blurry. <laughs> uh.
0: Pops comes back to base the next morning. You also get to do a landing minigame, and this is harder, but I don't know. I kind of of all the mini games, this is still not too bad.
2: You pretty much just line a crosshair up with the uh, with the landing strip, and then you just you know slow down and hit it at a right angle, and well, not at a right angle, but okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're also graded on how well you do your landing. It's just how fast
2: you can be like stopped on the runway, but halfway down, and they're like, "Yep, good, all right."
0: Afterwards, Jeanette says that he was given official press corps privileges, because he was freelance before, because Hamilton said he would have been a journalist if he had taken a different job. Jeanette feels like he owes him, and then says that maybe Wardog
1: is the story's after. Yeah, I think this is also the mission where your player character Blaze is officially considered leader of Wardog. Yeah, because the
0: replacement captain is dead, you are now yeah. declared captain. <laughs> Which sets you up for a mission 5 rendezvous where Osea is going to use its remaining aircraft carriers to carry out a counteroffensive, So you have to join up with them at the Eglin Straits, which are covered in fog. And as captain, you can now purchase aircraft. We mentioned the points values earlier for targets. There are also monetary values. One thing that's kind of annoying is that buying and selling aircraft is a separate interface, and the menu's kind of clunky, and it takes a second for aircraft models to load in. It's hardly the worst example of this you could get on any system, really. Yeah.
1: A little, like, annoying thing I find is having to purchase the same uh, plane for all of your teammates.
3: I don't
2: mind
0: that so much, because especially if you play on hard, you make enough money that you can afford them.
2: This is important, because the undided bomb you have is sort of fine for this mission, but you may want something with a little bit more air-to-air punch. Especially because, like, in this one you're still defending the cast roll.
1: Yeah, A lot of water targets in this one.
2: You might want to buy different planes for yourself and your wingmen.
0: You get to keep the four F5s, and you can sell them also if you need to make some money to buy the other stuff. You do need to sortie with four planes, and since you can sell stuff back at full price, you can't run out of planes. Partway through this mission, all these other squadrons are leaving. Nothing happened. Once those squadrons are far enough away, a bunch of enemies appear from the fog, you are left to defend the Kestrel with limited numbers and a really good track plays. Holy
2: crap, Rendezvous is such a good track. Ace Combat has a history of having really good soundtracks, but Rendezvous was a track that was so good, they used it for the E3 reveal, and then they just more or less changed the pitch of it for for the full game, and it's still good.
0: Yeah. You seem to be doing a pretty okay job of defending the ship. And then you get a call that a ballistic missile launch has been detected. The first one will go off and damage a bunch of ships. Then you're told that everything below 5,000 feet took really heavy hits, so you need to climb above 5,000 feet whenever the AWACS calls out that a missile's
1: incoming. Straight up an instant kill if you do not climb about 5,000 feet by that time.
0: They always say 5,000 feet, so if you're playing in metric, it's... 1,530 meters, which is important because I forgot I was in metric and I flew 5,000 meters into the sky. <laughs>
2: you flew into the stratosphere.
0: <laughs> I was very safe from the missiles, let me tell you. So when he calls in, you get a 10-second countdown, signal by like a burst of static, and you get this atonal beep noise when he comes in, and only the Kestrel, Swordsman, and Dog survive the attack and the rest of the carriers that they were going to base this attack around have been destroyed. Wardog is not close enough to refuel at a home base, and there's only one carrier to land on, so they go to higher Air Force Base. Nagase has mentioned at the end of multiple missions that she's not going to lose her lead plane, and she says it here again for like the third time, and I was thinking, is this just going to be her whole character? But this is the last time that she does this. And it's revealed afterwards that the attack came from the Synfaxy, which is an advanced submarine that was in development since the last war in secret. And the last thing that you get during the debriefing is the command that's going to use something called the Arkbird to destroy the Sinfaxi. That kicks you into the next mission, Whitebird Part 1.
1: It's probably the most visually stunning mission in the game. You have to defend Bassett Space Center while they prep a satellite payload to take a weapon onto the arkbird That weapon being a laser. Also,
0: Mitz mentioned beforehand that the region that the base is in is called North Osea, but it was originally South Belka, just beyond the region that was devastated by the nukes they set off. And Hylark is also where Wardog trained. So they're very popular among all the trainees at the base. The picture used for the first article about this squadron that Jeanette writes Chopper is covering your face, but everyone else's face is visible, so you are clearly a light-skinned man, but it is kind of ridiculous. Like, I guess they didn't want you to have a face because that would make you a specific person, but you already are a pretty specific person, so whatever. It was funny, but it is strange.
1: I also forgot to mention that Dog has to send these new recruits to Sand Island. They're sitting off for this particular mission, but they are escorting a bunch of rookies.
0: Also a detail I like, after leaving Luck, you go to McNeely Air Force Base to stop off, and that's when the next attack comes against the Space Center. During the briefing, you can see the base commander logging in. So for Perro, his login is Island King, and then for McNeely's commander, it's Rocket Boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's mentioned that the Bassett Space Center was built by Osea and Yuktabania because they wanted to build a space station under the Ocean president Harling's direction, alongside the Arkbird, They don't say here that it was made to destroy the fragments of the Ulysses meteor, but that's the thing that's getting in the way of building a space station, is there's so much debris.
1: Nagase points out that she uh, really subscribes to the president's idea that space exploration is a hope for peace.
0: So, Yugdabani attacks by parachuting tanks into the area and chopper mentions that if you shoot the parachutes the tanks will slam to the ground and be destroyed and it is a pretty uncomfortable thing to do but it is the fastest way and there are a lot of tanks when you're not even finished dealing with the tanks and also fighter jets a bunch of cruise missiles come at this
2: catapult as well
1: the game is pretty nice in letting you miss one or two of the cruise missiles because they send a load of them at you
2: White Bird Part 1 really tests your multitasking. Yeah. You got a whole bunch of stuff going off at one time. It's a mission that you gotta really focus, otherwise you're gonna get overwhelmed.
0: You gotta use that overall map so you can see where the missiles are coming from so you can catch them ahead of time. Once the countdown happens, the catapult is launched clear. All the targets and stuff disappear when you get the mission accomplished notification. But afterwards... Jeanette mentions that they wouldn't know why they targeted the Space Center until it was too late. Because as a reminder, this is told in the past tense, and uh, that's very (laughs) ominous. Also, for being this mission, you unlock the fa 18 c Hornet, which is a
1: multi-role fighter,
0: and I use that on a ton of missions.
1: Yeah, it's one of the best early game planes. Yeah.
0: From there you get Mission 7, Frontline. You have escorted the new recruits to Sand Island, but a large-scale amphibious invasion force is coming in. You and the trainees, who are referred to as Nuggets, are all sent out to fight them off. And this mission seems mostly just like a managing targets thing where you want to stop them from crossing through the battle area to reach Sand Island. Until you hear that burst of static and an atonal beep and hear
1: that a ballistic missile has been launched. Wardog tries to help these rookies get to a higher altitude. They don't entirely succeed.
0: They're telling everyone to climb, you know, get above 5,000 feet. But then Thunderhead calls in and says that he's getting an interrupt, saying that there's some satellite link happening, and he doesn't know what it is. And then a laser shoots from the sky and blows up the ballistic missile. And suddenly the mission has taken yet another turn. <laughs> And at this point, you'll still be fighting regular targets, like, okay, I can handle this as usual. But as you proceed, Synfaxi launches three missiles in a row. And the laser is able to shoot the first one down, but after that, the other two go off, and all the trainees get killed.
1: Afterwards, the anti sub detection just chimes in and gives you the Synfaxi's location. After they shoot one last laser to make the Synfaxi
0: surface. Yeah, they shoot the synfaxes ballast, and it's forced to surface, and now you have a boss fight against a super weapon. <laughs> this part is really intense, because at first you think, okay, it's surfaced now, I'm just going to have this fight. And this thing has a lot of targets, very strong, takes a lot of hits, and it will still launch burst missiles during the sequence, so you have to take on as many targets as you can, and then make time to climb, because if you don't, you will instantly die and have to start the mission over. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and this is a fairly long mission already, so you're probably really strapped for ammunition by this point as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I had to basically finish this entire mission with a machine gun, which was <laughs> terrible.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty rough.
0: When you blow up the Sinfaxi, it crushes the invasion so much that they all retreat. But after the mission clears, you see another giant submarine maneuvering underwater. So once again, here's another ominous setup for the future. Also, you unlock the A-10A Thunderbolt 2, which is the definitive ground attack aircraft. It has a giant chain gun that is pointed towards the ground more than other planes, so it's much easier to shoot ground targets with it. Ton of armor, it can take a bunch of hits. It's not very maneuverable, but it's not for dogfighting. This is also the only game where I actually really liked using it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the Thunderbolt 2 in, uh, in 5 is pretty good.
0: After that, you get the mission Handful of Hope. Yutabania has now settled down after the last invasion, so you're just going on a regular patrol in an area called Akerson Hill, which has an automated anti-air network. You go out there, and you're split into two groups, with you and Edge, and you encounter a transport plane using the callsign Mother Goose 1, which is on a secret mission to reach the neutral country of North Point and it's not transmitting a signal because it's on a secret mission. So it took one missile hit, and it needs help navigating through the
1: blind spots
0: in this anti-airfield.
1: So your radar is able to pick up where the cone of vision for these AAs are. Basically, what you're supposed to do is navigate your way through this, and Mother Goose 1 falls pretty decently behind you. It does ask you relatively to slow down or not, take type turns but i don't think it really matters it's fairly forgiving
0: it's maybe not the most exciting thing in the world on replays but the first time you do it is pretty tense to just try and thread the needle and get through all those spots part way through your honey and fighter show up when you reach the other side you hear some enemy pods talking about how they'll get medals for destroying the plane and the plane begins to malfunction and then You hear over the radio, like the pilot gets cut off, and then someone else chimes in and says, the pilot was killed by a spy, and the co-pilot is injured. So the guy on the radio says, well, I'm the cargo, and my secretary is going to try
3: and land the plane.
1: And thus he asks you to call him Mr. Cargo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You just need to blow up some wind turbines to make sure the plane can land, and the weird thing here is they only become targets in sequence. Like, as the plane gets closer, you can't just all blow them up and then fly away. (laughs) Then afterwards, Nagase asks Mr. Cargo if he had to use the White Bird to fight war if peace is still possible, because the Ark Bird has been loaded with the laser, and it's pretty clear at this point that it's the president.
1: (laughs) They very much spell it out to you at the end of this mission.
0: And he says that it's still possible, they just need the Ark Bird so they have something to negotiate with, Everyone's low on fuel, so they can't stick around. So a group called the 8492nd Squadron comes in and say they'll handle the rescue operation. But afterwards, when they get back to base, Jeanette gets his camera pushed out of Perot's face, because Perot's in a bad mood for some reason. Later, Jeanette asks Nagase what happened, and she says that the white Bird was the one thing they had for peace negotiations, and it has slipped out of their hands. And then you find out through narration that explosives were hidden in supplies delivered to the Arkbird, and its laser was destroyed. Like, I remember when that happened, it's just like,
2: oh no! (laughs) It's like, oh shit.
0: I just feel like stuff keeps happening when you're not expecting it, with the Sinfaxi attacking and then the Arkbird getting destroyed. You get the sense, too, that no matter how strong your successes are, you're going to be on shaky ground throughout this. And that leads into Mission 9, Lit Fuse, where Osea is finally ready to do an amphibious invasion of Yuktavania, and you have to assist four different landing groups. You have to go split your attention to four different locations because they're all happening simultaneously. So again, this is just like a systems-driven, make sure your allies don't get wiped out.
1: Each group will let you know when they're about to lead an attack.
0: Pretty straightforward mission. Also, before this mission, the poem you get changes to The demon soars through dark skies. Fear and death trail its shadow beneath. Until men united wield a hallowed saber. In
1: final reckoning, the beast is slain. Continue to being incredibly metal.
0: (laughs) Also, Grim tells Chopper that his older brother is part of the ground forces.
2: You can sort of see like the vestiges of what would become like the multi-front system in Ace Combat Six in this mission. Yeah, but it's way more focused and. Sort of sequential in that they'll tell you, hey, you know, we're about to move up. Whereas Ace Combat sits just like, oh shit, war is happening all the time everywhere.
0: <laughs> and then after that, you get Mission 10, Blind Spot. This one's another one that's mostly a gimmick in that you have to destroy retreating enemy transport planes. They're a bunch of jamming aircraft, so like your targeting will get messed up. You won't be able to see where enemies are it'll look like there's maybe more targets than there are, like, ten times as many targets when there aren't. Grim's actually the one who notices that it's the jamming that's causing 100 aircraft to show up.
1: Yeah, and these jamming aircraft. they're way above all the other aircrafts, too, so it's not entirely hard to pick them out. Mm-hmm. So,
2: earlier on we mentioned the yes and no prompts. In this mission, you get an important one, but you're not going to realize it's important until the next playthrough. <laughs>
1: It is such an innocuous question, too. It's like, hey, have you listened to Face of the Coin?
0: He doesn't even say that until afterwards what the song is called. It's like, did you listen to that song?
2: Yes, no. Chopper asked you whether you listened to a song. You did a yes or no prompt. In this particular circumstance, it considers not answering the same as no. Mm-hmm. It's in your best interest to answer. <laughs> the 84-90 second shows up and strafes a Aitabanian Engineering University you take the fall for that one
0: yeah because there was jamming going on so no one knew that there was anything else going on it's just like well we know you were there afterwards you get sent to the capital our red to face judgment for this
2: and everyone says
0: 8492nd showed up and did it the response is 8492
2: 8492 is that number all you people know
1: Vordog is sent to one of two missions, and they decide via coin toss, which is what the yes or no question that Chopper asks you leads to.
0: And if you say yes, I'm going to say you get the good set of two missions, and if you say no or don't answer, you get two missions with much better music, one of which is the worst mission in the game, and the second is the mission people mention hating the most, but I'm okay with.
1: I did not do those two missions in my playthrough <laughs> this time around.
0: So first, if you say yes, you get mission 11A, Chain Reaction. A civilian international airport's under attack. This one is pretty straightforward, just destroy the targets. There's not too much to say. Like, the, the chatter is good on
1: this mission. The chatter does talk about what you would be doing in the other mission, 11B.
0: Which they mentioned there's a gas attack. It sounds pretty serious. It's a gas attack in the college town, but they take care of it. The capital has its own air defense force, there are just two targets, so they sent Wardog to one. From there, you immediately get sent to another branched mission, mission 12A Powder Keg. You have to destroy a Yuktobanian ammo storage facility in a jungle area. The two gimmicks of this mission are lining yourself up so you can fire missiles straight into the mines where they store the ammo. And also, there are ground troops with shoulder-mounted Anti-air missiles, who you can't see or detect by a radar. If you shoot into the jungle, like where they are, they'll stop firing at you. I mean, you probably kill them.
1: They are incredibly amazed that you actually found them and shot them. Also,
0: the uh, the music for this mission, I mentioned in the Mega Man X4 episode, SNES games had this distinctive reverb effect to them, and the instrumentation for this, outside of the higher quality like orchestral sounds. All the backing stuff sounds like it's from an SNES game. It's, it's pretty cool, but it was like kind of weird to notice. I'm like, is that, is that the sound of like the music in Secret of Mana playing? <laughs> While I'm launching missiles into these ammo depots? <laughs> also, there's a hidden hangar with a red stripe on it that has experimental aircraft parts inside when you blow it up. They'll remark on it when you do it. But it's not entirely likely that you'll find it, because there are multiple of these throughout the game, and you can't get them all in one playthrough. But... This one is completely out of the way. It's in, like, far like northeast of the map or
1: something. Yeah.
0: Separate from all the ammo storage facilities, and you just fly over there. Then it will appear on your map as a target, and then you can destroy it. But yeah, that'll be paid off later. Now, if you said no or didn't respond to Chopper asking about Face of the Coin...
2: Then you screwed up. (laughs) Then you get
0: Mission 11b, Reprisal. Which is about the gas attack in the college town of bana sounded pretty dark but it's the goofiest mission in the game which is weird because it's also the most boring mission where you get a mirage 2000d plane to fly with the special weapon being an anti-gas agent that fires in like a grenade-like arc and you can't lock on to the gas spouts they're not super hard to hit but it's really
2: awkward (laughs) You go through all the rigmarole of neutralizing this gas, and then you have to fly around for four fucking minutes <laughs> while, while they talk about this wacky getaway.
0: The one thing you can do, you're not allowed to shoot the van. Even though you can damage it, I feel like they should just stop because there's a plane that shot them. And they're like, wow, we could get shot more and it should stop. Also, when the police officers mentions he has an anti-tank rifle, and everyone's like, that's not standard issue, so it's like, this guy just has a hobby purchase of an anti-tank rifle? Like, there must be no gun violence problems in Strange Real <laughs> if someone can just buy an anti-tank rifle for fun. <laughs> <laughs> this goes on for four minutes, and it regularly cuts away from flying to close-ups of the car chase, but it's so boring, and like I mentioned vehicle models aren't that good and the ground textures aren't that good so it's like you're really going to zoom in on these low detail muddy textures for this sequence for four minutes the one joke i do like is they throw stuff from their car which shows up on your targeting computer so like chair rocket launcher gun but if you blow those up actually with like your machine gun then they'll throw a bucket of fried chicken out of the car
2: (laughs) to gain speed Uh, the the world's worst casualty (laughs) Truly, war has such a
1: high cost. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of casualties, three hundred people died.
0: So after all that wacky shit, when like, oh, we have an officer missing at his daughter's birthday party. Ha ha ha! What a fun time was had. Freeze frame credits roll. Then like, <laughs> by the way, three hundred casualties resulted from the gas <laughs> <Yeah>. attack.
2: <laughs> it's playing play- like you everywhere you look. And there's like, <laughs> it just pops up on the street, three hundred casualties reported in gas attack. <laughs> So yeah,
0: easily the worst mission in the game. I must have played it the first time I played through the game because I played through everything, but I completely forgot about it, and when I played through it again, I'm like, "This is really still going. Am I doing something wrong? But no, you're not. This mission does not get enough flack compared to Mission 12B4 Horsemen.:
2: You're in a dry, sort of almost deserty region. And there's a uh, Debonian munitions factory there that you have to take down. And it's protected by this big radar network, and you have to destroy each of these four sites in this interlinked radar network individually, but at the same time. The entire time you're doing this mission, Nodice will provide a countdown for you to hit targets. The thing about this is the window for hitting these targets is really tight.
5: It's not
4: terrible.
0: If your missile hits, After she finishes saying one, it usually counts. I think if she says two when you're also at maximum missile lock distance, like when she finishes saying two, if you fire a missile, it'll hit when she says now.
1: The game does prime you for something like this with the um, ballistic missiles in the earlier missions, but I feel like the one here is tighter.
0: We do have to mention, though, the most important part about Four Horsemen is the music is so
1: fucking funky. I love it. (laughs) We'd say a lot of the music is great in this one, but this one is exceptional. Yeah, it's really good.
0: This is actually, upon re listen my favorite track in Ace Combat 5, straight up. After you destroy the radar rings, you do get to blow up a ground base. The only problem with that sequence is there are some targets that are inside hangars you blow up, where you have to be right over them, or flying straight downward at them to get a good shot at them, like you'll otherwise miss a whole lot. Very strange, but... Other than that, yeah, like, that part's good. Then you get to hear awesome music and just wreck this secret base. And there's also another set of hangar parts here. That's why you can't get all the secret plane parts on your first go. Yeah. And from there, you get Mission 13, Demons of Rosgris. I just love that you see a shot of, like, an arctic area, and a single burst missile flies out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) Nagase is in the briefing room, trying to remember the next line of a story she heard as a child, and then Chopper's like, oh yeah, yeah, I heard that story. It's the demon of Rosgreeze, right? My grandmother used to tell it to me. And then Jeanette narrates what this legend is, that in times of great change, this demon called the Rosgreeze appears and rains death on the entire world and then dies. But after a period of rest, it returns as a
1: hero. I also really love this cutscene because at one point, Chopper basically extends his hand out to like get the book is reading, and I don't know what it is about that cutscene, but it looks like she slaps his hand away.
0: (laughs) Your mission is to destroy this new super submarine, the Hrimfaxi, which is hiding in the Rosgree's Straits.
1: Wardog follows a transport submarine, bringing more missiles to the Hrimfaxi, and they are given a very limited window. If they're caught, they only have a solid minute to shoot the Hrimfaxi before it submerges
0: before you get to the mission you get to do a mid-air refueling mini game which is the hardest one because you have to line up with a plane it seems like it might not be too hard and then you wobble all over the place and you're like am i going to crash into this plane am i going to line up with it properly i flew past the plane what do i do but you can also do it like really fast once you get the hang of it I think in terms of minigames, it's the one that's most satisfying to get good at. it? just like, yeah, I know how to fly a plane. <laughs>
2: that's right. I'm a pilot.
0: <laughs> I could shoot down hundreds and hundreds of fighter jets and destroy tons of bases. You want me to line up a crosshair with a plane in midair?
2: Impossible. No one's <laughs> ever done this. <it. laughs>
1: the Hermfaxi has uh, basically the same stuff as the Skimfaxi earlier, so you still have the ballistic missiles. Every now and then, the Himfaxi will submerge and re emerge, so you basically have to wait a given time, and Chopper himself does not like waiting, as he points out. It submerges
0: just so you can fight the other drones and stuff that's released, but it re emerges because the damage you do it the first time means it can't launch missiles underwater. So sometimes it will launch a missile and it will be at the Ocean landing force way out there and other times it will be launching at you, and Thunderhead will let you know which one it
1: is. Also, I think you have one other person acting as AOx in this one, outside of Thunderhead.
0: There's another mission commander, because another guy takes over during the briefing to let you know about it, because it comes from higher up in command. He's also observing the mission.
1: This is also the same mission where uh, War Dog learns that all their higher ups kind of suck.
0: <laughs> but after you destroy it, the Brimfaxi crew declares that we thought we were the Rosgrees, but it was actually the enemy squadron all along. After you beat the mission, everyone's celebrating, and Jeanette interviews Pops about his past as a pilot.
5: Me? The ace pilots who sunk the enemy submarines are right over there. And I'm the person you want to interview now? No, it's not that. It's just that
4: I heard you used to be a fighter pilot yourself.
5: I just fly freight planes for the maintenance crews now. The captain, Captain Bartlett, that is, it was time for an old man like me to quit trying to compete with the young guys. Talk about a lack of respect. (laughs) Where did you meet Captain Bartlett? We were both shot down and we bailed out behind enemy lines in the last war. We got through the bullet-ridden battlefield and made it back to the Allied front line. I tell you it was tough getting the army to believe we were on their side Shot down you two hey it was a long time ago everyone makes mistakes right
0: it's funny that he's just so complimentary towards pops he's just kind of like buttering him up for some reason which doesn't seem like the most professional thing to do as a documentarian but okay
1: and yeah, pops himself is kind of confused by it he's like but the really successful pilots who blew up a submarine are right there why do you want to interview me
0: <laughs> but yeah the details of his past with the Bartlett are pretty interesting again it's a reminder Bartlett's still out there you don't know what's happened to him so Pops is the most experienced person on the base that they're going to need to rely on <laughs> and then you get the mission with I, I'd say this actually ties for my favorite song in the game This is my favorite like song with a sense of pathos to it <laughs> for mission 14 ice cage A team of Marines has captured a POW internment camp, and they want to send in helicopters to rescue all the prisoners, but there are enemy aircraft in the area. They've taken over the base to a certain extent, but the other half of the base doesn't know it's been taken over, so they want to destroy all the patrol planes and then get the helicopters in there to get everyone out before the base
1: realizes that
0: they've been infiltrated.
1: Grim brings up the possibility that Bartlett, who's still missing might be part of the POWs in this internment camp.
0: And when you show up Sea Goblin, the Marine team recognizes Sand Island. They've gotten pretty popular. So they're like, oh, this mission's gonna go great. (laughs) Because of this massive snowstorm going on, you won't detect enemy aircraft until they get close. But Chopper will give you a remaining aircraft count to let you know how many they are. And it's just like, have you been to the upper north part of the map? Okay, there's a couple there. It's a couple in the middle. Pretty straightforward.
2: After you take down all the uh, aircraft, you have to take down ground defenses as well, because otherwise they'll shoot down the choppers. And after you do that, Nagase asks the marine
1: team if Captain Bartlett is with him. They check one time, and she asks them to check again, and is immediately shot
0: down. The gunship that was accompanying Sea Goblin is sent to pick Nagase up, because she's safely ejected. But because of the storm's intensity, the gunship immediately crashes too. And you don't want to leave her behind, but you can't do anything. So you have to leave with Sea Goblin and return later when the weather calms down. During a debriefing, Perro says, We have to look for Captain Nagase because everyone in War Dog has been promoted again. (laughs) (laughs) Jeanette goes into the rec room and sees Nagase's book she was trying to fill in. And it was a childhood fairy tale a blue dove for the princess, which actually they put a lot of work into animating, like there was someone whose job on the staff was just to illustrate this children's book, and there are multiple pages, but you barely get to see it. It's very interesting.
1: I believe the Japanese version of the game uh, came with a blue dove for princesses uh, along with the manual. Oh, well, that's
0: cool. Yeah. Also, I looked at that person's credits on movie games, and they never did anything like that ever again. <laughs> Also, there's a person in the credits on movie games, I I gotta mention this, that they were one of the people who edited the script for Radio Conversations. Later on, their job was the gameplay designer for Soul Calibur Legends, the Wii beat-em-up where you do waggle controls to do all the attacks, and it was really bad.
1: (laughs) So I guess, I don't know, stick to writing, buddy. (laughs) What a career. But with Nagase on the run, it leads us into Mission 15, White Noise. Nagase has her Distress Beacon with her. War Dog is given the uh, mission to locate Nagase, which your HUD gives you a signal indicator that increases in pitch and tempo the closer you are to Nagase.
0: And as you are on the right path, a jammer aircraft will appear, and also formations of four aircraft show up. So this is actually a great mission to bring along a plane that has the XMAAs, or the ones that target four planes mm-hmm. at once, because they're all flying like right at you. I think it's five planes, but you can blow them all up with that, and then just switch to regular missiles to blow the last plane up, because it's super easy to hit planes when they fly straight at you.
2: Yeah, if they're flying directly at you and you fire a missile at them, they don't really have much time to turn. Mm -hmm. Especially the uh, XMAAs, because they travel
1: faster than regular missiles.
0: Yeah, and they're also one-hit kills on planes instead of two hits.
1: I should also bring up the fact that in the middle of all this stuff, while they're trying to rescue this woman, Sea Goblin randomly asks Hey, is she hot? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, buddy, you have more important things to do right now. Also, I
0: failed this mission a couple times the first time I played it, because once you get close to Nagase, she is not just a general area you need to fly by, even though the message for her noticing you is hearing your engine noise. You have to fly like directly over her point. So if you got really close and you're like, I didn't get her, like try to fly in the middle of wherever you looped around. <laughs> if you fail the mission... She says, all right, I can't run any further. I'm going to destroy my radio and make my last stand here. Ooh, that's dark.
1: Uh, that reminds me, like, the first time I ever played this game, I think Chopper or Grim asks, like, hey, do you see Nagase on the ground anywhere? So I assumed that I had to keep looking at the ground to see someone.
0: Oh, no.
1: That was a bad decision.
0: There are some things that show up on the ground, but, like, you have to be really close. Like, in, um the mission where you blow up the rumfaxi they mentioned this like after the game came out like there are actually penguins hidden somewhere in this game and people were like oh where are the penguins and so <laughs> in the like free flight mode thing you can unlock in mission mode where you just fly around the mission area people finally was like if you fly low on this mission you'll see the penguins i don't know why it was such a big t- i mean that's cool <laughs> but like Was it like a meme, because there are also penguins in the background of Tekken 5? Does that stage take place in the Roskree Straits?
1: (laughs) Well, apparently Ace Combat and Ridge Racer take place in the same universe, so who knows. Mm -hmm.
0: So after you find Nagase, then Sea Goblin shows up, and you have to protect them from planes and ground-to-air emplacements to protect the helicopter so that it can pick her up. Once she gets picked up, the mission's clear.
2: Chopper, asked the question again.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't face the coin be great right
1: now? And you can say yes or no. A great little thing is, if you said yes earlier to the same question, and if you say no to this one, he's like, but you you said earlier that you liked the song. <laughs> also, I want to bring up that the cutscene that plays after this mission ends is a shot of Nagase with the two um, helicopter pilots that crash trying to rescue her from the previous mission. And a guns pointed squarely at one of the enemy troops and it lasts for like five minutes, and there's no movement at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like a weird diorama. The shot where she's facing towards the camera with a gun is like in the concept art. It's a really iconic shot from this game.
1: And the narration behind it is the enemy is referring to Wardog as the demons of Rosgris. Also, from holding the soldiers up, she
0: got a bit of info from them, which is that this war is not popular in Yuktabania either. Meanwhile, Bartlett is still missing, so the higher ups are still suspecting War Dog because they're all Bartlett's former trainees. So, this sequence of events, despite being very stressful for Nagasai, has not cleared them of suspicion. And depending on how you answered Chopper's question, you get one of two pretty similar missions. 60 Days Desert Arrow where you assist bombers and an army tank battalion to attack an airstrip and a field headquarters. During this mission, at the start, Chopper sarcastically says to Thunderhead that he is Rosgrease III. This dialogue happens whether you do 16A or 16B, so also Grim's brother, you'll hear him over the radio saying, yeah, that's my brother up there in the Sand Island squadron. I'm really <laughs> proud of him. Yes, yeah, this happens on 16A and 16B, which is why there's not much else to say about it other than At the end of 16A, an enemy AWACS
1: shows up. It takes a lot of shots. Considering the mission that comes right after this, 16A and 16B being just pretty light is understandable.
5: Yeah.
0: So 16A is Desert Arrow, 16B is Desert Lightning. For this one, you have to assist one tank battalion attacking in airfield and one tank battalion attacking in oil facility. The main thing that's different about this one is that there's just more ground targets. Once you defeat all of them or time runs out, You get a mission update that enemies have appeared upriver, including a battleship. There are a lot of battleships in this game, and they're not to scale. Like, your airplane is bigger than them. This one is actually the right size.
2: (laughs) They do better about that later on in the series.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a limitation. Yeah. After you clear those missions, the government is holding a peace ceremony in a stadium in November City. War dog has been cleared of enough suspicion that they're allowed to do a flyby. As the vice president, his first name isn't given, but his last name is Apple Ruth. <laughs> gives his speech for this peace ceremony, and you're also a guard detail in case something comes up.
1: The idea is that after they do their flyby, War dog immediately goes into their defense position.
0: For this formation part, you have to maintain formation, or the mission fails. You do have to stay roughly in formation, but again. I got better with the normal control scheme, but even 17 missions deep, I was still sometimes like wobbling around, and (laughs) Nagase's like,
2: great flying, Blaze! (laughs) They will comment if you're getting really far away, and they'll give you a brief period of time to get back into formation.
0: Also, the music playing at this part is the music that plays when you do free flights in mission mode. Very uplifting, and it sounds like the kind of music they'd use for this occasion anyway, so it's hard to say whether they wrote it for free flight mode first or for this.
1: Applewood gives his pro-war speech, and Chopper's just in the background being like, God, this is terrible, this sucks, I hate this.
0: Yeah, he's giving a pro-war speech of what's supposed to be a peace ceremony, saying like, we will never throw down our weapons, we will never surrender until we destroy Yugdabania. And then the crowd begins chanting a song, and he's like, wait, please stop singing that song. And then Chopper's like, oh yeah, if they want to be friends with the enemy, I'm cool with that it's a peace song they're singing at the ceremony but then partway through this happening a bunch of enemy fighters show up this part's really good because chopper notices the air raid siren hasn't gone off so no one's evacuating yet for some reason and the music kicks in along with like the chanting for the song and it's really pretty eerie because the situation is taking a pretty obviously scary turn.
1: and you also get the chatter from the people manning the stadium and they basically just confirm like they had no clue that an enemy squadron showed up and they don't have time to scramble everyone out of there. They're planning on first getting the more important people on the VIP boxes to safety before getting to the general public. They mentioned
0: that the nearest reinforcements are 6 minutes away, so you'll have to hold them off. While the timer is ticking down while you're fighting off all these enemies, you're like, "Okay, we got to just get through the 6-minute mark." But then partway through, you hear the 84-92nd leader chime in and say, like, Oh, they had us all going for a while, everyone. It was just a drill. You can all head back to base. And Thunderhead's like, wait, no, what's going on? But they've deployed electronic countermeasures so that he can't communicate with anybody, except you, because you're in the immediate area. And then stealth bombers show up to blow up the stadium, but also the enemy forces start talking about, just focus your attacks on one, and we can bring them down. And they focus on Chopper.
1: Chopper gets hit with a missile and takes damage. So he has to bail out, but he doesn't want to bail out anywhere close by because most of the areas are, like, housing.
2: He wants to specifically bail out in the stadium because it's an open area, but it's not finished being evacuated yet, so he doesn't want to bail out yet because he could put lives in danger.
0: Once the stadium's fully evacuated, Chopper's eject system fails. He can't break through the canopy, and his plane is failing, so he crashes into the stadium.
1: And the music just cuts out at that point, And it stays cut off for like a good 30 seconds.
0: A bunch of other enemy planes show up. And you can hear Grim and Nagase breathing like really heavily over the radio. As you destroy more enemies, they're like, but they're fighting back even harder now. They say it's like we've awakened the demon or something. Eventually, after you destroy enough planes, reinforcements show up. And in your debriefing, you hear that there were no civilian casualties.
1: I also like that at the end of the mission, they do a missing man formation. Then you get to mission 18, Fortress. This is a
0: mission where the very first time I played this game, I got stuck at. Because there's like no twist to this mission. Again, this is such a system-driven game that you can just lay out targets in a challenging formation. And that can be enough to determine the mission's difficulty. But before we get to that, Pops is examining the wreckage of one of the Yukdabonian fighters that attacked during the peace ceremony. And he tells Jeanette, This plane is built lighter with fewer parts just to get them out there for a lower cost and with higher performance. I can't believe they're still making them this way. Jeanette says, Who's they? And he says, North Osea Grunder Industries, which was formerly the South Belkin Munitions Factory. And that he heard a rumor that there was an all-Belkin Aggressive Squadron brought on to Osea sometime after the war, which was done in such a covert level that the current administration might not even know about them. And from there, you get your briefing. And your target is Kruik Fortress, which has resisted capture twice without any air support. So Wardog is called in, and you have to take out all these targets and assist this battalion in getting through. The detail I like is that On your first playthrough of the game, there's an air-to-ground indicator for the mission, right? Like I mentioned. With the planes you can afford at this point in the game, with three of them, it is almost impossible that you have enough air-to-ground power. Right away, you can already feel the fact that you're down to three members is hurting you really heavily in this part.
2: The thing about this mission is that there's lots of bridges and underpasses and everything like that. The best way to really maximize your hobbled air ground power is you have to do some pretty risky flying. This is one of those missions where like an unguided bomb might actually be a good option just because of how big the explosion area is. Yeah. You're flying you know really really close to the ground you know you're constantly getting the caution pull up. Mm -hmm. You should probably get used to that if you haven't already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I mentioned I got
0: stuck at this mission on my first playthrough. That was during a pretty rough year of my life I was like at the start of what would be a pretty rough year and so i got grounded before beating this mission and i gotta say if there's a mission that i'm glad i didn't get to before getting grounded for like a year it would be mission 18 plus
1: 8492 thunderhead reminds Dog that the next step is the ukabanian uh, capital and instructs them to meet up with the allied squadron to refuel
0: then you get a call the 84-92nd squadron glad to lead you heroes to a refueling point. As you get close to the refueling plane, suddenly the radar gets fogged and a missile flies right at you. The 84-92nd doesn't exist. And you can hear the enemy on the radio saying, like, we can't let them end this war too soon. It's like, wait, they're not nuked Abonian spies? Like, who are these people? Grim's like, this is like a trap, like what happened at the stadium. And is also like, yeah, the 8492nd also rescued the president earlier. You have to just reach the escape line to the east and tell everyone what happened. Enemy planes on this mission are gunning for you super hard. I tried this mission on easy just to like, see if there's any special dialogue for destroying all of the enemies. And it's just like, we ought to get out of here.
2: It is really heavily recommended, though, on your first playthrough that you just run away.
0: I tried to do this on easy with, like, a superplane, and I still died multiple times. They are at a much higher level. When you return to base, you get a scene of Jeanette
4: hanging out with Pops. Would it surprise you if I said that President Harling is nowhere to be found within the capital?
5: Not really. The hardline war Osea is waging right now ...hardly resembles the peace policy the President was promoting. Let me guess. He disappeared just before we invaded Yuktabania, right? Exactly. My journalist friends told me that
4: nobody's seen him enter or leave the office since. All of his decisions are communicated through the Vice President. And it gets better. A lot of the military officers that resigned over disagreement with the President's arms reduction plan have started to return to the capital.
5: I found out something myself. That Belkin aggressor force I was telling you about. Apparently they're called the 8492nd Squadron. Also, and here's the kicker, Captain Hamilton, the adjutant base commander here, used to be assigned to the 8492nd.
0: When War Dog lands, you and Nagase go to meet Hamilton, and Grim meets up with Pops and Jeanette and tells them what happened. And they're like, well, we got to do something. It's like, okay, we'll go to the base commander, Pero. He'll listen to us. And you get this scene where the base commander says he was expecting to see Pops and grills him about his past.
5: Special Forces 2nd Lieutenant Peter and Beagle. Or I guess you prefer Pops. 15 years ago, You and Bartlett were shot down over enemy terrain. Bartlett's squadron HQ was destroyed, and all of its data was fried by Belka's magnetic pulse weaponry. When you made it back to the Allied front lines, it was Bartlett's word that convinced them that you were his squadron leader. Is that really true? Bartlett turned out to be a spy. So, who are you really?
0: Right as things are about to turn, the power goes out, and the three of them run out as Pero tries to shoot at them. But it's funny, he's just kind of ineffectually standing there, just like shooting after they have clearly run away. (laughs) It's really funny looking. And then Nagase says that she knocked out Hamilton. The entire base is looking for them. So you have to sneak into the back hangar where Pops keeps his training planes (laughs) And you make your escape in those for mission 19, final option.
2: So yeah, in this mission, you are in a training plane and therefore have no weapons. <laughs> the mission is more of a story thing. has a really good track to it. Mm-hmm. But pretty much all you're doing is you're just following Pops as he leads you out.
1: Dave's Combat Series really loves its tunnel missions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is one of those. Yeah,
0: dying in this mission sucks because <laughs> you have to redo a bunch of non-combat following Pops.
2: So, the 8492nd is revealed as Drawbox Squadron. Pops used to be in Drawbox Squadron, and he was known as Hudgebine the Raven, mm-hmm. which is a pretty awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of the mission, though, is when Chopper's dog will wolf at you, and it turns into a yes or no problem. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> that
1: is so good.
0: Also, I, I like the detail that oh, there's a scrapyard on this volcanic island and like the radar's distorted but Pops knows the way like this is to throw off the 8492 earlier it mentioned that he flew away from the base with a bunch of supplies so it's possible that like this is a place where he's scrapped stuff so that's how he knows about this place and then at the very end you have one last very tricky tunnel and here's the real upside of normal controls it's not <laughs> just that you can do good flying it's that you can recover from terrible flying <laughs> <laughs> I am astonished I didn't die on this, considering how much I was flying around all over the place. I was recovering from mistakes the entire time I was in the last tunnel,
2: but I made it. So yeah, you did through this tunnel, and Captain Snow from way earlier, Bo Billingsley, arrives and helps you fake your deaths. Sea Goblin from earlier lies to command about Wardog failing to eject. So at this point, the Ocean military thinks you're dead.
0: You get a scene of them lifting you onto a
2: boat, and they say,
0: this will be your new home. And also for being this mission, you unlock the Hawk, which is the training plane you used. It'll have weapons if you use it again. And it's very cheap. It is very (laughs) affordable. It's an okay plane. I like flying it better than the A6E Interceptor, which, again, is terrible, and you shouldn't use it ever.
2: Slightly before this, we didn't mention it at the time, but after Mission 17, you unlock the uh, Su-47. And the thing about the Hawk is that it's very cheap. Whereas the SU-47, while being a very good plane, is expensive. Really expensive.
0: What's weird about unlocking the SU-47 is you unlock the earlier Sukhoi plane lines, and you gotta fill up the kill rate for the SU-20-something to get another 20 model and the SU-32, and then the final one from that. Or you can buy the SU-47 outright, which is better than those planes. Yeah. I tried putting in some time with them, but I'm just like, why am I doing this? I should, I'll just buy the SU-47, and it was a huge improvement. It's a very strange choice. I mean, I'm glad, because the SU-47 is
2: cool. It's not the really cool, yeah, forward swept wings. Yeah. In Ace Combat 7, it's one of the few planes that can perform a culbit as opposed to just a half culbit. I'm bad at flying, so I don't know what those are, but <laughs> take for it. Basically like, you know, half a loop or a full loop post stall. That makes sense.
0: So this takes us to Mission 20, Ancient Walls. So, Wardog's been taken aboard the Kestrel, which has not seen action in a long time, since all the other pilots aboard the Kestrel have been killed, except for Captain Snow. Pop talks to Anderson about his own past, and he was one of the Belkin pilots who was assigned to drop a nuke on his own country, and he refused and defected with Bartlett's help.
1: And he mentions being chased by a group of people known as the Balkan Greymen, and they also confirm that they captured a ship smuggling aircrafts into Uchtobania, so which gives War Dog a perfect excuse to still have access to planes.
0: And I didn't know this the first time I played the game. I assumed they just gave you your planes back with this excuse, but you actually get four F-14A Tomcats for free. So if you, I guess, were struggling and didn't have a great plane to use, you get these four. And the F-14 planes are pretty good. Also, they have the wings change position, depending on how fast you're going, which I think looks really cool. Yeah. Also, you get a new theme for the briefings. The first theme had a bit of unsureness to it, but it was still cool. It had the slap base, This one, I feel like... Any other game would use this early on because it's got a kind of like badass sound to it. But I like it here because you've pulled one over on the people who've been like manipulating and controlling the situation. And you're now on the offensive against the real enemy. So there's this more sure tune for this part of the game. Pops is the one who handles the... Well, he handles the briefing and then Jameson Price takes over because he's not a character. (laughs)
1: Anderson has an intelligence vessel on him called the Andromeda that intercepts a secret message regarding Harling's location, which is Steer Castle, located on the border of Belka and Northocia.
0: So you have to come in and help Sea Goblin infiltrate the castle and rescue the president while they're under attack by the castle's defenses. The other reason you get four F-14 Tomcats for this mission is that you have to take off using a carrier-based aircraft. This is the only mission where they do this, but you need to either use the F-14 Tomcat, the A-6E Intruder, so you don't use that one, the F-A-18C Hornet, the F-35C, which is another plane that in this fictional world actually works, unlike in the real world, where it costs billions of dollars and they pitched it without even knowing if they could build it, and they can't build it, or the Rafal-M. The Tomcat's Oh, the F-18 are good choices for this mission. It's actually pretty straightforward,
2: though. I would recommend the F-14, just like, semi active air missiles are really good if you can aim them.
0: The way they work is there's a circle, and when you fire a missile at a target once you've locked on, you have to keep it within the circle, but the missile will track to that target, and it has more range than the regular missile and kills in one hit. Actually, it's something I ended up using a lot on this playthrough, whereas before, I was like, okay, you want the quick maneuver air missiles, the multi-target missiles, the high-damage bombs. We're like, no, this is actually pretty
3: good.
2: Yeah, semi-active uh, air-to-air missiles are only marginally worse than, uh, than quick-maneuver air-to-air missiles. That's just, just quick-maneuver air-to-air missiles are busted.
0: So before you start this mission, you get a- another part of the poem. As the demon sleeps, man turns on man. His own blood and madness soon cover the earth. From the depths of despair awaken the Rosgrees, its raven wings ablaze in
2: majestic light. <laughs> Still metal.
0: Captain Snow, not having any other people to fly with, finally has Bordog to join, and you are short a member, so he joins you.
2: Beau Billingsley plays the loneliest fighter pilot.
0: <laughs> I also love, like, when you're in the hangar-choosing planes, everyone has a line. Chopper would say, like, which plane am I going up in, Captain? And for Swordsman, he says, Captain, please choose a plane for me to
1: pilot. <laughs> I also like that once he's in the mission, they do talk about chopper.
0: During this mission, once the goblin touches down, you just have to defend them. It's pretty easy. This part, even on hard mode, this is like one of the easier missions. You get to hear Sea goblin like narrating like a super intense gunfight. It is also like kind of action movie-ish where you hear someone over the radio being like fighting with nothing but a banquet table between us and stuff like that. It's like you you wouldn't <laughs> say that, but you know, it's fun dialogue. I will say, I guess, on the whole, this is one of the weaker missions, but it's not that long, either.
1: (laughs) It's pretty quick, I would say, because there's mostly only air-to-air combat until you have to break down a wall later on, because Stegoblin Goblin uh, locates President Harling, and they need a wall to be destroyed in order to make their escape.
0: Jeanette hears word that the Ocean army tried to take the Yuktabonian capital of Synegrod, but without Wardog's help, they were locked in a stalemate, and... Now that you know who's behind all this, it's like Belka's got its sweetest revenge that these two countries are going to be in a war that lasts forever. (laughs) The Andromeda receives an encrypted message sent from Yuktabania somewhere with coordinates and a time. Harling realizes it's for him because the numbers within the message are the combined totals of his votes in his two previous elections he won. (laughs)
1: So I'm not sure if this is a common thing, but does the president just remember the votes that they got? <laughs> this was such a confusing thing to say.
0: <laughs> I feel like if they made a big enough deal about it, Harling's shift to like peacetime was how much of a mandate he had to carry out his plans and that it was that popular. Yeah. Wardog becomes President Harling's personal air fleet. And their planes are given a sweet red and black paint job and a new emblem and squadron name, Ros And also, all the planes look cooler with the black and red paint job on them.
2: Yeah, it just looks really good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> also, the emblem, the symbol is the face of Ros Grease as the hero. Weirdly, the next mission, like, you know, they play up all this, but the next mission, Solitaire, is named as such because you are sent to photograph an active Belkin mine. So for this, you get no weapons, and you have to fly through an area with radar coverage.
1: I like this mission a lot, even though not much happens in it, because it's just so low-key. You get a
2: bunch of, you know, radar bubbles on your radar. The lower you fly, the smaller they are. The higher you fly, the larger they are. So you're encouraged to stay low to the ground. While you're there, the Drabarker Squadron is there as well, with some debonian and Mark planes.
0: This confirms that Yuktabania also has a bunch of ex balkan members in an aggressive squadron of their own. Both sides of the war are being manipulated equally.
1: Do you have special camera equipment have to take one picture, I believe? One or two.
0: You need, like, the mine entrance and the jet together.
1: Once you've done that, they realize you're there and all Blaze has to do is get out of the area.
0: You can just ignore the radar coverage because they
1: already know you're there. <laughs> but uh, Grabberker is going right after you. Once I took the photos, I just
0: kind of figured, alright, I'm done here, so I was already booking it, so they were not even close to catching up with me. (laughs) And then you get to the other side and your team is waiting for you.
1: The recon photos show that there's a presence of nuclear warheads inside the mine, which handily leads into mission 22 closure.
0: From the photos, Pops realizes that disguises Yuktavani and Ocean fighters Belk is going to drop nuclear warheads on both countries with the opposing fighters to make the conflict drag on even further. Harling tells them to destroy the mine entrance so they can't take any more nukes out of it. They don't know how many could have been out of there already.
1: By the time they get to the mine, they realize Gravaker has already grabbed them. That mine takes so many missiles to destroy. I don't know if it was on hard, but it was just so many having beaten the
0: ace combat 7 dlc with a super submarine in it i still think the entrance of this mine has the most raw health of anything in the entire series <laughs> <laughs> it'll probably take all of your air to ground special weapons most of your missiles and also your guns to destroy it <laughs> <laughs> this leads into mission 23 ghosts of rosgris where you get another radio transmission and it specifies a Canyon area along with a radio frequency, and when you arrive you get a call from a man calling himself Alyosha. That's not his real name of course. (laughs) I like that he
1: had to clarify.
0: Also I heard that line so many times because I failed this mission a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You are in a canyon which is covered by Yugtebanian anti-air defenses. You have to fly within the canyon to take out all these targets to stop them from finding these resistance members who are trying to dismantle one of the nukes that they've gotten a hold of. It's a bunch of like intellectuals and students that have banded together to form this resistance. If you fly above the canyon walls, a missile will be launched at you. You can dodge it, but it's kind of hard to dodge within the space you get in the canyon once you've got a missile on your tail. There are these grooves in the canyon you can fly through, but it's really tight.
1: I love the radio chatter in this one because there's one student trying to disarm this nuke. They play it rather like comedically, so there's like three to four close calls where they might blow up this nuke. <laughs> Alyosha mentions a he that says like a war dog would come. Yeah, most of Rasgaris is questioning who this he is, but they focus on the mission at hand. After you've
0: destroyed all the targets in the canyon, which it's not. Simple, like you've got to make a couple passes. There are also some enemy planes that are flying above the canyon that it's hard for you to hit them, but they can fire missiles at you. You can take them out, but they are difficult enough that you can skip them since they're non-mission critical. (laughs) Though they did mess me up for the next part, because after you've destroyed all those targets, off near Squadron, the Yuktavonian Belkin Aggressor Squad shows up. They refer to you as the ghosts of the Demons of Rosgris, they're not really sure if it's really you. And they split into two groups with two planes each, and they fly in opposite directions through a pattern in the canyon. They're hard. <laughs> this is a hard fight.
1: I would love this fight a lot, but it is uh, incredibly difficult because you still have the low altitude restriction from early on.
0: I legit thought I might get stuck at that fight on my hard playthrough. Well, I guess I gotta stop here just for the podcast, be like, yeah, and then I... Watched the rest and remembered it that way. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't normally fully replay games for the podcast. I've usually played through them and I'll watch stuff to like refresh my memory or maybe play a bit, try some stuff out. But I just got kind of pulled into this game again <laughs> and played it all over on hard. This is the part where I thought I might not be able to actually be.
2: <laughs> yeah, this machine on Expert is really something. Uh, I bet. Once Off Your Squadron is, you know, in the canyon, you gotta be like on your game the entire time. This is actually
0: the mission where I went for a semi-active air-to-air missiles over the quick maneuver ones, because the quick maneuver ones, they still can dodge them, because they're really good, yet the semi-active, since it keeps homing in on them as long as you have the circle on them, it can home for longer, so it has a better chance of hitting them.
2: Also, like the canyon is wide enough that you can maneuver, but like it's narrow enough that semi-actives don't have a whole lot of room to go off course.
0: And also you can do things like fire it and not have the target in the circle so they can go past a turn in the canyon. And then you yaw a bit to the right and then re-lock onto the target. It'll turn and miss the canyon wall to hit them. Which I did completely by accident, but afterwards I'm like, yeah, I'm good. That's what Swordsman's saying on the radio.
1: I'm the true gamer.
0: Sorry, guys. Our captain's too good. I'm like, I have failed this mission five times. I am not too good.
1: With the defeat of Offner, the rebels successfully disabled the Nuke.
0: Also, Offner, you defeated them, but they all ejected. So this wasn't the last you'll see of them. And Alyosha has a message from him, and he doesn't know his name, but he says he has a message for the squadron leader, saying, "Hey, kid, I hear you're a hell of a squad captain
1: now." The mission after this one is probably my favorite mission in the entire game.
2: Whitebird Part 2 is a phenomenal mission.
1: I mentioned
0: that Hiroshi Okubo only did a few tracks for this game. He did Whitebird Part 1, and then he also did the track for Whitebird Part 2. And it's a much more pensive take on that track. The Andromeda has received an encrypted transmission in Belkin. A nuclear attack by satellite will happen in the city of Okchabursk in Yuktavania. And that satellite is the Arkbird, which has secretly been repaired and fitted with one of the nukes. In order for the Arkbird to change its orbital trajectory to target the city, it has to enter into the atmosphere. And you are going to intercept it in this window and destroy it.
2: This is also a really character-defining moment for Nod to say... In Whitebird Part 1 she talks about how inspiring she found the Ark Bird right near the beginning of the mission asked not to say if she's okay with destroying it, and she's really conflicted over it.
0: But eventually it's like, the president will commission a new one once we have peace again.
1: While you're climbing to reach the Ark Bird an escape capsule, this is immediately launched from it. Enemy chatter reveals that an ocean astronaut was in the pod and sabotaged the control system
2: it drops lower than they had intended to, which gives you just a slightly larger window. So the Belgians have modified the Arkbird. They have it launch UAVs at you, and also it will fire a laser at you, and if that laser hits you, it's
1: an instant kill. And to further confirm that Nagase really loved this project, she has knowledge of the Arkbird's blueprints because she has read them. So she asks the rest of Razzleys to focus on the booster in the middle, which is what the Arkbird requires to achieve escape velocity again.
2: They realize that they can't get back to orbit, so they initiate a plan to crash the Arkbird in Osea and set off the nuke there.
1: Nagase once again points to the cycle engines. So in a last-ditch effort, the Belkan switch to the Arkbird's auxiliary engines. And
0: then you destroy those, finally, and the Arkbird crashes into the ocean. The investigation team afterwards confirms that there's no radioactive fallout from the nukon board. That mission is really intense, but also a little wistful and sad for being a mission where you can get killed by a laser instantly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Also really touch on the fact that these Belkin pilots were really willing to like get themselves killed just to blow up a city.
2: The whole mission, you're basically flying in a straight line because you have to keep up with the art bird. And like still, uh, because of all the UAVs and the lasers and everything, you've got to do some pretty tricky maneuvers. Yeah. That's what sort of makes that mission feel really tense. In my opinion, it's one of the best missions in the game.
0: Having taken care of that disaster, you get to Mission 25, Heartbreak 1. President Harling has been sending several broadcasts into Osea to tell them what's going on. But the Osean government there censors his messages and says they are enemy propaganda. So, he takes a helicopter to Auret so he can deliver the message himself. Meanwhile, they get a transmission from Bartlett with a time and radio frequency. And he reveals that Nicanor, the Prime Minister of Yuktabania, was also imprisoned and the war wasn't his idea. So. You have to help Bartlett as he plans to steal an airplane in an airfield and escape with the Prime Minister. But you have to guard him on his way to that airfield and for his takeoff.
1: This mission is interesting in that while you're trying to guard Bartlett, you're given the choice between a faster but more riskier area because you're on a time limit.
0: And I always chose the fast route.
1: (laughs) I don't know anyone who's taken the slow route,
0: honestly. I mean, it is pretty tight when there's a lot of enemies there, so it can be pretty tough, but, I don't know, it's fun. <laughs> it's more game. <laughs> also, there's a woman named Nastasia in the car with Bartlett, and they're having this dialogue. It's like Bartlett's a cool super spy dude who's doing all these cool car chase maneuvers, and Grimm's like, I can't believe he's doing all of that in jeep. Nastasia's speaking with this sort of femme fatale with her dialogue. <laughs> it's, it's very silly. And it's much better than the car chase
2: in Reprisal. <laughs> yeah, you're not being made to wait for four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: feel like that's the length of this entire mission, actually. Yeah, it is. Bartlett gets to the plane and makes his escape. Grabok shows up again. Luckily you don't have to defend this slow, crappy, outdated transport plane he escapes in and Grabok is gunning straight for you. Of all the ace fights in the game, it was not that bad. It felt very straightforward. I mean, I guess it's nice because making sure you defend the jeep this whole mission is tough, so getting completely ripped apart by an ace pilot squadron would probably suck a lot.
2: If it was, like, off near level, that would be just dreadful.
1: <laughs> After going through the entire game, you're finally given a chance to fight Graviko on like, an equal footing. Mm-hmm. So that's also pretty cool.
0: Yeah, once you complete the mission, Jeanette interviews Nastasia who is revealed to be a Yugdobanian recon major, and Bartlett's ex-girlfriend from 15 years ago. Bartlett was not at the POW camp because, while he was captured, he escaped inside Yugdobania and was never at a camp at all. Also, the line when Nastasia says to call her major, she has a really thick Russian accent for just that line of dialogue, and she didn't have it before and she doesn't have it after. (laughs) I don't know if that's on purpose or it was just like separate sessions and they forgot. But she has a disk that is encrypted so they can't crack it, but she knows that it has the plans of the Grey Men. And also points out the Solg in the sky, because the Arkbird had been delivering supplies to this satellite. It was made during the Balkan War by the Oceans to be able to attack from space, but the war ended. The Arkbird's destroyed, so whatever was delivering can't be delivered anymore, but perhaps it was already finished. And then you get to. This isn't the final mission, but for me, is like the defining moment of Ace Combat 5, Mission 26, Sea of Chaos.
2: In this, you're backed with the Testral fleet. You encounter a big fleet of Utabonian vessels, which is blocking their path. And Prime Minister Nitinor tries to get the fleet to stand down and seek peace, but the fleet commander declares them a traitor. And so the true of the frigate, Pitominic, moves to block that the Nukedibania fleet from attacking you. The missile destroyer Gumrak turns against the fleet and defends Niknor. Anderson tries to get Niknor to escape and meet with Harling. And this is all happening within the span of like a couple of minutes. <laughs> I
0: do like specifically the guy in charge of the battalion. He says like, we don't know what we're fighting for anymore. <laughs> they mentioned so many missions ago that this war wasn't even popular in Nukedibania. It's not popular in Osea. Now someone in the military is finally like, what if we just stopped fighting? <laughs> Anderson tells Nicanor, escape, meet with Harling, get a televised picture of them shaking hands to reveal what's actually been going on. So he takes a helicopter opposite direction, and Rosgreeze and the Kestrel fleet have to defend the defecting Yuktobanians. Then when you take off, a song plays from the Kestrel speakers, The Journey Home, which if you remember the mission of The Journey Home, they were humming this song, now you get to hear it, actually. This song is... Like, if you look at the lyrics, it's pretty corny. It's like the equivalent for My Heart Will Go On, but for a movie about planes in war instead <laughs> of the Titanic. I told a friend of the show, Devious Vacuum, that, and she said, oh, so Pearl Harbor. And I'm like, yes, so for the movie, not racist, Pearl Harbor. <laughs> literally, the first two lines are, their journey begins starts from within. But I gotta say, I mentioned before that i got grounded i said it was a pretty rough year it was the worst year of my life so when i got to this part it's like i guess this is how people who are really into musicals feel where they hear a song and you're like wow this is the corny shit i've ever heard my whole life but it's like oh this is really emotionally affecting that is actually my reaction emotionally to the journey home <laughs> seriously things that have made me almost cry near near automata and the journey home from ace combat 5 ahead of that it's a really
2: good song partway through the mission it transitions from being on the ship speakers to like a non-radio like really well done version
0: yeah it goes from like diegetic to non-diegetic this version is sung by elizabeth ledezinski it's a sort of operatic performance like it's very high register and like the song using the metaphor of flying forever as like in war, like, can you find the answers? It's like, well, no, it's when you return home from war that you find an answer. The lyrics are actually co-written by Kazutoki Kono and Joe Romersa, who has a lot of production credits on a bunch of music, and also a lot of 90s anime dub voice credits. (laughs) It's not super deep or anything, but at that time in my life, after going through something very difficult, having this moving moment, it was the right time for something this incredibly earnest
1: one of ace combat's strongest suits is it's like earnestness as you said earlier the games are it's most corny but it's also when you're in it the emotions just riding and just makes you love it a lot
2: they do this to you at points in the game where like you've been with the characters for a while so you're starting to grow kind of attached you're sitting there like yeah this is corny as hell but yeah Mm -hmm.
0: Throughout the course of the battle, more ships will defect to you. Some of them will be like, are you the Rosgreeze? And you'll say, yeah. And they're like, yeah, Like you guys are awesome. It's like, yeah, you've been on the opposite side of the war, but they like respect your skill as fighters. Now that they're getting the picture that this conflict was manufactured, it's like they don't blame you for doing what you did, especially since you're now on the opposite side of it and you're saving their prime minister. (laughs) Also, some Ocean ships show up during all this, and Anderson's like, well... We could try asking them for support, and then the communications officer is like, well, they were listening the whole time and think we're Yuktaponian traitors. <laughs> so you also have to fight the <laughs> O.C. and ships. None of them defect. I think some of them eventually do, but like not during the mission. Also, Grimm's like, they're not listening to us, and Snow says, of course not, we're supposed to be dead. And like, you're not supposed to be dead. You're the most alive out of all of us here. We're glad you're here, but try not to steal Valor, right, buddy? <laughs> But after you have finally defeated all the enemy ships, everyone else joins Kestrel's fleet. And that leads to mission 27, Aces.
1: The, this they found has been decoded and lays out that the Belkins have completed a weapon called the V2, a tactical missile that could wipe out half of the largest cities in Ossia and Yuktabania. The V2 is going to be launched from the Solg, which is unmanned and controlled from a previously unknown location.
0: The Andromeda traced where the radio transmissions to the Arkberg were coming from, and they found the origin as being in South Belka, the facility there belonging to North Ocean Grounder Industries. The CEO, who has been making planes for Ocea this whole time, is a member of the Belkin Greyman. <laughs> the facility has a tunnel that's been dug under the mountain range that divides North and South Belka. As Pops is about to say what's in the tunnel, the Kestrel gets hit by a missile. So everyone has to rapidly abandon ship because they're unable to shoot down the rest of the missiles. The way the cutscene is directed made me think Anderson died (laughs) during one of the missile strikes.
1: Yeah, it's so strange.
0: He's deep in the ship, so I mean, probably not. But like, it really looks like you see the missile and then it flies through the hull of the ship to Anderson looking up. And then the missile hits. (laughs) He says, everyone else abandon ship, launch crew, launch those four planes, no matter what. When you're in the hangar, you hear people in the hangar crew say like just pick the best plane whichever one you want this is the last time you'll probably take off <laughs> i wouldn't skip this one if i were you
2: <laughs> it's the coolest takeoff sequence <laughs> at that point the test roll has taken too much damage and is completely abandoned and so you do the scene of anderson and pops and a bunch of people on lifeboats looking at the test roll and saluting it as it goes down
0: anderson mentions when Jeanette interviews him he's like oh i'm just the guy who's lost battle after battle But then once the Roscoe's take off, he says, like, after all this, I finally won because the planes took off. And as long as they're in the sky, we can win this. He hums the journey home. Jeanette's like, he was the one who put it on the speakers during the previous mission. (laughs) It cuts to Harling and Nicanor. They declare that the war is over. and say the people who are responsible for this are still out there. We have people who are moving to end this battle, but we need your help. He asks members of the military in both countries to assist the Rosgri squadron. And when you start the mission, there's some people like whistling the journey home. And as you're flying into this area, other groups of Ocean and Yucubanian groups come in, like a helicopter team comes in, a fighter pilot squadron comes in, and as more people show up, they go from whistling the song to like humming it all together. And the final person that joins you is an AWACS from Yuktibania named Oka Nieva, which means Sky Eye, which if you play Ace Combat 4 or Arcade mode, you'll know that's the AWACS from that game. It's not the same guy, but it just,
2: it means the same thing. Yeah, he's a much more jovial Russian-accented man.
1: Mm-hmm. Ace Combat likes to do this a lot. Like, the Ocean astronaut back in Whitebird Part 2, that was a person from Ace Combat 2. Not the same person, but just the same name. <laughs> One thing I like about Okuneeva is he says, yeah, in my language that means, like, sky eye, and I think it's Polish and it actually means, like, eyes of heaven or something.
3: Hmm.
1: But yeah, you must destroy, like, the defensive positions and the anti-air emplacements to let an armored team and a helicopter-based backups team capture the control facility on the underground passage.
0: They need to capture this control facility because the control unit for the Solg is in this tunnel, underneath the mountain range. So you need to clear out all these emplacements and enemies, so that all the different teams can move into place to capture the facility. They'll open the shutters, and you will destroy the core. So for the first part of this mission, you are once again managing targets across a large area. Pops calls and says that the CEO of Gruden Industries has offered a V1 nuke to any Ocean or Yuktabanian that will help destroy the Rosgrees. and enemies from both nations come in because if you remember there were hard miners from both countries pushing for this war so they're still loyal to that end and also Hamilton shows up he is gone completely off his rocker he is obsessed with killing the Rosgreeze because he's like it's your fault this war got dragged on so long. Uh, I'm going to kill all of you I'm going to take that nuke and I'm going to end this
2: war myself at this point the salt is firing at you the whole time
0: I never got hit by that. I mean, I'm glad, because there doesn't seem to be any indication of where it's going to attack, but it's mostly, like, to be scary that there are these attacks coming down, so you feel more time
2: pressure. The tunnel's opened up, but they can only keep the shutters open for, like, a limited time. So a plane has to enter from both sides and hit the sold control units at the deepest part of the tunnel. Hamilton chases you into the tunnel, and Bartlett flies in from the other side. You're doing one of the most complicated tunnel runs in the series. You have to avoid shutters and obstacles in the entire way, and it's a pretty long tunnel.
0: Yeah, there's a new track that plays during this part that gets more intense as you go, and since you... I think there's one part in the tunnel where you can pull a U-turn if you're really, really good, but you pretty much have to keep going forward, so as the track gets more intense, you're getting closer and closer to the control unit, and you're being chased by Hamilton so you can't slow down too much, otherwise he will blow you up.
2: You get to the point where... You destroy the unit, and shutters will start to close behind you and in front of you as well. Mm-hmm. You fly past Bartlett, who is a huge idiot. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you did this part where he flies past you at like really, really high speed and just shouts at the top of his lungs.
0: <laughs> this is such a terrible place to fail this mission four times in a row. Not that I would know anything about that. Not me. <laughs> like I was at the very end the first time I died at this part. Oh no. no. <laughs> Once you get out, though, it switches to a cutscene of all the planes flying away, and Nagase asks where Hamilton is, and Grim says, well, he was clipped by a ricocheting plane. And some people are like, wait, did Bartlett die? But it couldn't be, because then people would be really upset, because you spent all this time trying to find out where he was and rescue him. <laughs> I think what happened is that he got the plane that was chasing him, because he mentions there's a plane on his tail, to make both of those planes crash.
1: Yeah, but I do just love how aside it is. Grim just casually brings it up.
0: Yeah, up his day. It's just confusing because you don't hear from him or like get any last anything
1: from him. He doesn't even say, like, good job, kid, or anything after it's over. <laughs> the mission ends with basically a shot of the Solg descending towards Earth. It leads into the final mission of the game, which is a hell of a final mission. Mission
0: 27 plus the Unsung
1: War.
2: The Solg was programmed to crash into the city of Aurid in Osea if its control is cut off. You gotta take off from this Aurid highway to destroy the salt in midair, and we've only got five minutes before the salt descends low enough to attack, and, you know, we won't have a big window after that. You get one last yes or no prompt after you take off.
0: Yeah, the entire team just calls out to you, like, Blaze, Captain. And then you should say yes or no.
2: It's good again. didn't get you pumped up.
0: If you don't answer it, they just all go simultaneously, like,
2: aww. <laughs> <laughs> By the time this prompt shows up, you only have about three minutes until the Sold enters the atmosphere, and uh, both Ofnir and Robot formations show up, and you have to fight them off. Yep, that's eight enemy Ace Pilots.
1: And just still being timed throughout most of it, so it's tight.
2: The Sold will show up, whether you are ready or not, once that time is up. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: When the first formation of planes comes at you, if you have the XMAAs, you can blow up like four of them before the fight starts. <laughs> Which is funny, because the dialogue assumes you didn't, and Grimm's like, ah, oh, it's two-on-one, this is so intense.
2: <laughs> if you're uh, really good, you can destroy all of them before the soul appears, and it'll actually give you a little extra
1: dialogue.
0: Then the soul appears, and the song The Unsung War starts up which we mentioned earlier was a Latin chorus retelling the story of the Rosgris. This track is
1: Mwah. It's amazing, yeah. Because it starts off with a low-key Latin chorus before leading into a more hectic version of the same song.
0: Mm-hmm. As the soul appears, though, Okadieva says, like, okay, Pops, gave me the structural details. There's a rotating accelerator on the outside. There are multiple cores you need to destroy to make the soul detonate away from the city but the accelerator rotates and blocks these cores, so you need to time your attacks to blow up these cores, and also there are a bunch of other panels that will break off parts of the soul so that it's easier to hit. But in destroying these panels, debris will come flying towards you, which killed me on the first time I did this mission immediately. <laughs> Pretty intense final battle, but once you hit the last target and it cuts to a scene, from red and far in the distance, you see an explosion like fireworks go off, and a bunch of outrage soldiers cheer for the Rosgrease Squadron. After that, you see the scene of like a park, and some text pops up, and there's an excerpt from an article written in 2014, so four years after the events of this game. says that the identity of the Rosgrease Squadron was never confirmed, though many believe it was the Sand Island Squadron. But all the records about Wardog have been cut off since the moment Snow shot them down.
2: Harling states a year before that, in 2013, the records of this war will go public in 2020.
0: You see a woman in the park reading a blue dove for the princess to a child in her lap. Cuts away, and Jeanette reveals that the Rosberries never flew in battle again. And you see a shot of Kirk Chopper's dog looking up at a biplane in the sky. He goes to howl. Flock of doves flies by. Cut to credits. Another version of The Journey Home plays, with vocals by Mary Elizabeth McGlynn. Man, what a good fucking game.
2: That's it's an amazing team. Hey, guess what, the Puddle of Mud's back! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the
0: second half of the credits, it it switches to Blurry by Puddle of Mud. There's a version of the song Ros that Plays, and there's a longer one that's on the soundtrack that doesn't get used. And it sounds like it would have been perfect for this part. It's not a medley, but it does capture the arc of the story musically. But yeah,
2: that was good. <laughs> that was a good video game.
1: I would say, like coming off the high, that it is that final mission. Just the music is blasting, and this is giant satellite just falling into a city, and you're just there, and everyone's cheering you on. It's it's such a high.
2: Aces is the sort of setup that like all other Ace Combat setups are going to be judged by.
0: <laughs> I played Ace Combat Four after Ace Combat Five. Ace Combat 4, the story it has is pretty good considering it's a really arcadey game. It's told still shots. The narration, upon seeing it again, it's okay that the performance of the narration is not great, though.
1: It's very monotone. Yeah.
0: That one's decent considering you weren't expecting much out of it. Fives, I think, is legit good.
1: There's some parts
2: of it where you can see stuff coming my way, like, oh, who's this guy? And it's like, it's definitely Bartlett. <laughs> Who's this guy? Well, it's definitely the president.
0: Yeah, but like, those are... It's not like they're spending so much time thinking about it and they can't figure it out, like they're not people with brains.
2: The stuff that it spends time leading you on is stuff that you actually have to sort of think about.
1: Yeah, and your crewmates throughout the entire of it. They're all well-characterized. You really learn to uh, love all of them.
0: Yeah. Just like the way it sets stuff up, like when Pops discusses crossing enemy lines with Bartlett and be like, it was hard to convince people that we were on their side, you could hear that and be like, yeah, that sounds legit. Also, the fact that Pop's name is Peter N. Beagle and that's his fake name (laughs) when he went to another country, I'd be like, dude, that that name's way too suspicious. (laughs) It has the kind of details like that, the naturalistic way that they say people's names, the story's presentation on the whole. Considering I wasn't expecting a story, like, I cannot believe how much i got out of it and when i think about stories in the ace combat series it's anti-war but also you get the high kill score and one of your wingmates says nice kill maybe you can see that as it trying to have its cake and eat it too but for media that tries to do it i think ace combat 5 walks a much better line than like gundam <laughs> just even though i love gundam a lot <laughs> i think this one handles it better on the whole
1: The general arc that most Ace Combat games is, like, you start off as no one and become this grand, unstoppable thing that changes the entire war. I would say having an entire crew do that sells that a lot more. Yeah, I think that's why it also has the
0: best story, because there's always something grounded of people sharing the experience and reacting emotionally. Because in other Ace Combat games, it is just you ending up with different groups of people, and there are other people in the story, but they're not. With you all the time, so you are kind of following multiple threads that come together in the end. That is satisfying in its own way, but it's not quite as emotionally affecting.
2: Remember how in Ace Combat Zero, like you're with Pitsy for most of the game, and then he betrays you, and then you're stuck with PJ for like three or four missions, and then he gets shot down? <laughs> <laughs> and then Poochie died <laughs> on the way back to his home planet. <laughs> It's like these are one game apart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, one thing I like about Ace Combat Zero that I think it does better is just setting up your primary foe.
2: I feel like instead of it being about like you and your allies, it's specifically about you and your rival. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting spin on it. That makes uh, Ace Combat Zero story engaging. But when you compare it to Ace Combat Five, you know it's got a much more rapid pace. In Ace Combat, you know five you get turned into Rosbury's Squadron at mission, I think, 19 it was? 20. 20, yeah. In Ace Combat 0, Pixie is turned into the enemy in mission 13, because it's a shorter game. yeah For that reason, I think Ace Combat 5 is paced better.
0: And there's some missions in there that are like, okay, this isn't the defining mission. Like, oh man, Desert Lightning. Such great memories. <laughs> in the pace of the overall campaign, it is dropped in at a very good point, where you can just do a mission of a flight combat game and not have any monkey wrench thrown into the whole thing. And then after that, things go off the rails again. Yeah, it's a really well-paced game. Outside of the checkpoints and reprisal, Like I don't think this game has like a terrible weakness. And like, Ace Combat Zero has, I think, one of the best final boss fights in any video game. Will never be beaten standard for games where you fly a plane. Most badass final boss track.
2: Unsun War is an amazing track. That fits the gravity of the situation when you fight in the soul. Mm-hmm. The soul is not terribly difficult to defeat. Whereas in Zero, you have the track Zero, this amazing flamenco track. The whole time, you're literally jousting in planes, and it's the coolest thing in the universe.
0: Ace commentary, Zero, in terms of being cool and badass, it absolutely nails that. But then you get another cutscene of a FMV live actor who's doing really badly ADR lines. It's difficult to take seriously. <laughs> it's enjoyable, but like, it's not gonna really make me cry. <laughs>
2: Sorry. <laughs> this gruff-looking military man in a war zone talking about how he wishes he could go back home to the sky, and oh my god, it's Pitsy, and uh, he's ADR, and it's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, so it's really kind of weird.
0: <laughs> it's very funny, but when it's cool, it's really cool, and it's mostly
1: cool. <laughs> To bring it back to His Combat 5, I agree that it's probably the most well-paced game out of all of them.
2: Out of the uh, the so-called Holy Trinity, it is probably the, the one that most deserves its spot.
0: And also in terms of the soundtrack, like yeah, they all have good soundtracks. The 5s crosses a lot of genres, and also because of the story emphasis, the music is always fitting for the moment. That makes the soundtrack hit harder in a certain way, because... Kimona from Ace Combat 4 is a great track. It's like a Cassiopeia song or something like Jazz Fusion, going wild, got drum fills, sweet guitar solos. And like, the mission is good, but the music isn't especially good because the mission is especially good. The music just happens to be extra good on a mission that's also good.
2: Yeah, it's it's a mission that's all about dogfighting old arcade style. You literally just have 15 minutes to just go ape shit on some enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, and his plane is amazing. If you told me that Kimona came from Top Gun's soundtrack, I would believe you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a cool mission, but, like, it doesn't hit quite as hard as Rendezvous, which I would say is probably the closest analog in the early game. Rendezvous is this really, like, high-energy but still kind of tense track. Mm -hmm. Like I said, they used it for the E3 reveal, which I think you should link in the post for this one.
1: And Just link in the entire soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just
2: link the whole soundtrack.
1: I was just going to say, like, even like the mission design in this game. I feel like if I was talking about a specific mission in this game, it's a standard mission where we have to shoot down things, and it's like, oh, and by the way, there's a jammer plane that's also dead that scrambles all your radar signals, so you have to go shoot that down. It's like, the mission design is such that if I'm talking to someone about it, it sounds cool to them.
2: Also, there's just more mission variety. Going from Ace Combat 4 to Ace Combat 5, Ace Combat 4 had a lot of missions where it's just go shoot down enough enemies at this point threshold, and then you can move on. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Ace Combat 5, you know, you have all sorts of different objectives. There's some missions where you don't shoot down any enemies at all. It really did more with what could be done with the Ace Combat format. People like 4 a lot, but 4 is just a lot of shooting people down. If you took arcade mode from 5 and it extrapolated it to the length of Ace Combat 4, it would fit, because that's how that game was.
0: Also, Ace Combat 4 is like, big speech moment in it is during the hangar section before the final mission, and it's also not captioned at all. <laughs> and also the guy delivering it sounds like a total dork. Now we will take back our
2: shattered skies! <laughs> like, Why'd they get you to do this? nobody they could have got will ever stand up to jameson price oh no not at all
0: (laughs) no honestly i think practice you can get from playing ace combat 5 on hard with normal controls will actually make it more satisfying in a way to go back to four and do those missions where you have to hit a score threshold because now instead of filling the score threshold within the time you have the skills needed to on your first run of those missions go for the S rank and actually take out as many targets as you really can. That experience is, you know, it, it's an expanded arcade mode in that fashion as well and I think it could be really satisfying that way.
2: Ace Combat 5, despite being the longest Ace Combat, is also one of the most replayable ones. Mm-hmm. You don't have the ability to play very hard and expert right off the bat.
1: The process for unlocking very hard in Ace is just to finish the difficulty prior to it.
2: You're encouraged to play through it multiple times especially with the kill rate system you know you're not going to unlock every plane on the first playthrough especially not the you know the special planes
0: so on replay not only do you get the new difficulties which you can play through the story mode straight through if you want to again there's also an option for a mission mode where you can select a mission and play it on whichever difficulties you have unlocked on mission mode runs of the game a special named ace will show up on each mission that you can shoot down, and they have a custom paint scheme for the plane they are in, and then you can unlock that paint scheme. Because on your replay in mission mode, you can choose Ocean Air Force colors, Rods colors, and if you unlock the special paint scheme, that third paint scheme, which is usually much cooler. <laughs> There's that aspect of replay as well as doing the other mission route you didn't do before to blow up the other hangars. Once you've destroyed all five hangars, the last one was an Aces. Right in the middle of everything, so you'll probably blow it up anyway. And unlock the ADF-01 Falcon, which is a very sci-fi plane. The Falcon is very expensive. Like, I beat the game on hard. Alright, I'll sell all my planes. Still couldn't afford one. But that's for a reason. Because it's
2: incredible. Oh yeah, the Falcon is absurd. It's one of those things that when you get it, you just use it and nothing else. Because it's just that good.
1: I would be bad not to mention that the Falcon has a laser. Yes. Also,
2: it's got one of the coolest cockpits.
0: That's a cockpit view I do like because it has honeycomb patterned screen because it doesn't have a glass canopy.
2: It's basically got the fucking panoramic view from Gundam. Yep,
1: sure does. <laughs> and uh, one of its colors requires completing all 32 missions in expert just to get a nice little blue skin.
0: The way the laser works is you press it and it'll fire out a beam for a short while, anything that the beam touches will will
1: almost instantly die. Like we said, it's incredible. But
0: it's not the last plane you're gonna
1: unlock, actually. Yes, speaking of buying planes and them costing too much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Once you've unlocked every other plane, you'll unlock this plane.
1: The XO2 Wyvern.
0: We mentioned the folding wings on the F-14 are cool, and the reverse style wings of the SU-47 are cool. What if a plane had reverse-style wings that also folded out?
1: Then you have the XO-2 Wyvern.
0: The other thing that's special about it is that it can fire four missiles at a time instead of two before needing to reload. That is useful on some targets, but it's more of a matter of nice convenience. But it is pretty cool that it has this unique feature, and it looks cool. Yeah. So we got a couple of responses through Twitter direct messages. The first one comes from At the Great Surf. He writes, Personally, one of the most interesting things to me has always been the Rosgree story. I think it's a really interesting example of Project Ace's habit of mythologizing the player as they play through the story. It's not unusual for the player to become some kind of figure of awe, like with Mobius 1 or Trigger. But I always thought it was interesting that Unsung War did this by showing your actions as being similar to the Rosgree's myth. It kind of stands out, particularly given that all of Wardog gets that treatment as a team.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Ace Combat 5 is less about you as Rastries 1 and more about
1: your team as Rastries. It's also like remains like a staple of the series. Ace Combat 0 references it. 7 definitely brings it up once or twice.
0: Yeah, actually the DLC is anchored around the idea of specific individuals being these factors, but again, it's centered around just your character, Trigger, and nobody else, even though the characters who are there with you most of the time... <laughs> like they are canonically written off in dialogue by other enemy pilots
2: Puckhound yeah it's Trigger featuring his good friend Count
0: (laughs) I think that treatment's also interesting for your squadron Grim seems like he might be annoying but he's actually not he is reasonably reacting to these ridiculous pressures and scenarios that he's in even when they're the legendary Rosgrees he's like I don't know if I can do this and it is funny to see someone react to being a legend or not react in this case and act as they always do because no one's ever going to see it. No one's going to be like, actually, it turns out Groom was a big weenie who peed his pants or something. Like, that's never going to come up. Nagase also is confident, but she's not so 100% sure of herself that she never doubts what's happening or whether they can succeed. They're up against some pretty stiff odds.
1: Yeah, even like a chopper's debt just shows how if they mess up, they mess up big time.
0: And the second response over Twitter comes from at McClaws, and they write... Good name, by the way. <laughs> Ace Combat 5 was my favorite game in high school. I used to play it over and over. It just seemed like everything came together so well in that one. The storytelling was absorbing, and it felt like my wingmates were really comrades that I cared about, even though there's basically no communication from the player character. i played every title since then, but none of them have been so totally engrossing. That leads into our next discussion, actually, perfectly, about comparing this game to the other games. We mentioned 4 and 0 a lot. They're the other parts of the Holy Trinity, and I think we've made their case.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd say like 0 is probably still my personal favorite, just because of some of the stuff that happens in that one. But 5, I would say, is the tighter, stronger game.
0: And after that, they're was Ace Combat 6, Fires of Liberation, which is an Xbox 360 exclusive, so I have never played it. Different story credit, different translation credit, a whole bunch of other different credits that weren't on 5.
2: It's fun. It kind of overextends itself in the whole like, multi-front battle thing. So you have a lot of missions that take forever. You have to fight a whole bunch of enemies. Basically, it's, like, it's, a, it's a good game, but also it can go dance with the angels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: That line, if there's any line you've heard from Six, is that line. And the fact that that's the anchor of the story is a little kid kind of misinterpreting her mom telling her dad to go fuck himself. is like, <laughs> the plot in that is kind of dumb. Not that like, oh, he's combat five is unimpeachable. Like, yeah, we mentioned it's corny. But like, Six is corny, but it also doesn't hit very hard ever. Your wingmate that's with you the whole time is really annoying. <laughs>
2: I don't even remember what your squad name is in 6.
0: 6 has fewer planes. We mentioned that every plane in 5 has one special weapon. It's kind of a cheat in 5 because some planes are mostly functionally the same, but they just have a different special weapon. Whereas in 4 and 0 and 6, you pick a plane and it has multiple special weapons, and 6 narrows down the cast to the planes that you would actually like using anyway. Okay, you don't get the F-14A Tomcat or the F-14B Bombcat. You just get the F-14D Super Tomcat because that's the really cool one. <laughs> Unless you have an Xbox One or something, it's not super accessible. Like, it hasn't been re-released on PC or anything. Yeah. And Xbox emulation's not quite all there yet for 360 games. Also, the soundtrack is good, but it's not as good. Like, The Liberation of Grace Mary is the big track from that game, and I was kind of underwhelmed when I finally heard it. <laughs>
2: Especially because at this point they had used it in like every single promotional thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With 5, they used more of the tracks in the promotional material. Or in the commercial, they just used Blurry by Final of Mud, so. Like. <laughs> and then you play the game, you're like, oh, this has actual good
1: music in it. Even Zero, like, I think that first E3 showing used the track Zero, but I think that's the only time it used it.
2: Not much of the music in Ace Combat Sits is terribly memorable.
0: And the last note about its presentation, I mentioned how Five put in all this effort to do a high-quality like, CRT presentation. Six's briefings and stuff look like every other Techno Xbox 360-era game. It's much less interesting to look at than the Ace Combat 5 briefings. Like They don't really feel designed. I mean, they are technically, yes, designed, but they don't feel like that was a consideration for how different they could be. Five, there's a detail even in early briefings where once the briefing is over you see the screen is off the blinds are open and you see the reflecting sunlight on the blinds as
2: perro is talking to you that's a really unnecessary but cool detail the briefings in ace combat sits look like a circa 2005 Winamp skin <laughs>
0: like, i mean that is what those techno presentation games all look like on the 360 and also the 360 interface like every iteration was a win amp skin <laughs> until the final one where it looked like the modern one
2: Who likes blades, people? I like the blades better than
0: squares. (laughs) I mean, that's fair, yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile on the PS3, there was Ace Combat Infinity, which we're only noting for historical purposes because it's been shut down and you can't play it anymore.
1: It was fine, honestly. It was not too memorable and it had a terrible, like, fuel system.
0: How much you can play per day. Yeah. I gave it a try hearing the the great menu music from Ace Combat 5 on the menus for Ace Combat Infinity, I started getting excited. And I started the game, the feel was kind of off. 6 and Infinity both don't run at, like, super smooth frame rates all the time. I mean, I guess that became more common afterwards, but as a thing I associated with the feel of Ace Combat 5 was a bit of a letdown, but more so than that, it's that Infinity has, like, a short 8-mission campaign, I kind of wish they could incorporate some of that stuff into like a smaller, I don't know, digital only release or something. If there was some kind of preserved way to play the single player content and even the co-op stuff in there.
1: It doesn't take place in Strange Real, but it does use Strange Real elements in it like Ulysses and Stonehenge. Which I feel does make the realized stuff more interesting and not as weird there were a lot of neat
0: gimmick planes and stuff in there, and there were some skins from the Idol Master. Those were also in 6, actually, you could get. <laughs> that was very funny to me.
1: The Idol Master ones are also present in good old Assault Arise
0: <laughs> But after that, there are the two PSP games, Ace Combat X Skies of Deception and Ace Combat Joint Assault. Skies of Deception is pretty interesting in that it's a game where you are constantly picking routes for missions, instead of just telling someone whether you listen to a song or not, you explicitly pick a mission. It also introduced aircraft tuning to the game. For the original aircraft to that game, the fictional ones, you can add parts to them to tune their performance. It's a cool game. Obviously, it doesn't run as well as it's a PSP game, but for the form factor and stuff, it's pretty cool. You can only buy it physically, though, or play it on an emulator. I guess you can buy a PSP and jailbreak it pretty easily.
1: I would say if you really wanted a um, Ace comic Experience on the go, it works very well.
0: The next one, Joint Assault. That's actually another Ace Combat game set in the real world. It's got a bunch of single-player missions on a story that's just kind of whatever. It's called Joint Assault because there were a lot of co-op missions included in it. That was available digitally for a while, but they took it off the PlayStation Network while it was still on my wish list, so I played it by other means. It plays as well, even a little better than Skies of Deception, and you can now do the tuning for all the planes in the game. If you can find a way to play those games, they're really worthwhile, portable experiences for sure. And you know, If you play on an emulator on your computer, they're still pretty good. And then we get to Ace Combat Assault Horizon, which is a game that is so divorced from the qualities of what makes Ace Combat good that I thought a Western studio made it. (laughs) But it turns out, no, Project Ace has made it. What does the Western audience like?
1: Garbage. Let's start this game with a turret section.
2: You gotta pilot a helicopter, you know, the things that die in a single hit. You didn't fly one and it's really
1: poorly controlled. <laughs> Let me play through the rest of the game. The finale has to make up for it. Its Combat finales are great. You just shoot a missile.
0: To make the fighting more cinematic, they had a new mode that makes you chase airplanes in like this close-up view. And you need to do this to kill a lot of big targets in this game. For me, like, because you're still fighting within the same system, you can feel how they are better than your other targets. Whereas in this, you go into mode that's specifically designed to make it easy to shoot them down. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also usually heavily scripted. So yeah, the last mission where you shoot a missile, you might say, well, I looked at that mission. It looks like you chase an enemy jet fighter. Did you notice that no matter how many hundreds of thousands of machine gun bullets get unloaded into the Russian guy who's going to drop the bomb on Capitol Hill, that he doesn't die until he gets to Capitol Hill at the most dramatic moment? Did you know that you can just shoot him at the most dramatic moment, like with one machine gun bullet and he also dies?
1: <laughs> this is also the one way to decide it. Okay, let's have a war journalist write the story.
0: Military novels. Yeah. And so the story and the script are boring. It is the most boring Ace Combat game I have seen in my life. Oh, the military dialogue is so accurate. It's like, yeah, boring. <laughs> Accurate military dialogue is boring. It has always been boring. No one cares about it, unless you're in the military, in which case, you were already in the military to hear accurate military dialogue. (laughs) How much accuracy do you want in your game where you juggle a missile at the end? I'm making that sound cool, but it looks really stupid when you blow up the missile at the end, too. Yeah. I guess we should be thankful, because it did actually sell decently and also reviewed well. (laughs) I don't think it would now, but it luckily didn't change this series too much
1: it does have the best quicktime event and that uh, you have to do a quicktime event to wave your hand and you can fail
2: <laughs> it did also give us assault horizon legacy which is actually a remake of a combat 2
1: yeah what a stealth remake i mean in japan
0: its title is 3d cross rumble which is a great title it has more story than two but this is like the coup d'etat forces have taken the fortress. Take the fortress back. Coup d'etat forces have attacked the city. Stop them from attacking the city. <laughs> That's kind of all the plot there is. Mostly they just add explicit references to stuff. They call Yujiya the U-S-E-A. It's not an acronym, but whatever. <laughs> it's fun, you know, it's got the plane tuning system from Joint Assault and Skies of Deception. Decent amount of planes to unlock. The handling's pretty good. You can use normal controls on the portable games, but I would not recommend it. It is so terrible to control a plane using the slide pad on a 3DS. It did leave a huge impression, but it was a fun and short game, and it's not that expensive nowadays either. And after that, we move on to 2019's Ace
1: Combat
2: 7, Skies Unknown. In my opinion, better than 4. Not quite as good as 5.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Part of the
0: reason I thought to do this episode is I thought that 7's release might my- Get more people to look at five because it's considered so highly, but like a lot of things, to the show that didn't actually happen. The seventh story makes a little less sense, is a little more abstract. Character motivations can sometimes be a little confusing or sudden. Kind of retreads some ground from five involving Belka and stuff like that, but the mission design is pretty great. You fight much bigger odds, and the enemies are more aggressive, so it is a much more thrilling experience. Uh, play it on normal, even if you beat five on hard.
2: Yeah, Ace Combat 7 is much, much harder. I brought it up before, but like you will be assailed by many missiles.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you love that missile alert noise, because oh boy.
2: Most common track in the game is just hearing missile. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Luckily, they added some features to it, so like if you fly in the
0: clouds, it will throw off missile walks. There are crosswinds in a couple of missions that can push your plane around. There's a mission with lightning strikes that can mess up your HUD if you get hit by the lightning.
2: That achievement is a jerk. (laughs) I can't wait for that mission where I had to fly through, and it's like, oh, there's an achievement to get through that entire mission without getting hit by lightning, which
1: is surprisingly difficult.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm glad we're not an achievement hunter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would say the best thing 7 has going for it is it has all the best parts of all the games.
0: We mentioned there's the operation thing in six. In 7, they're just mission areas, and they don't explicitly split it up in operations like that, but they're just sort of different target areas you can go after. There's some score attack missions, there's some missions with specific objectives. The soundtrack, it's not as good as 5, I don't think, because it just doesn't have as much variety. Like, a lot of it anchors around the leitmotif of Daredevil, the big iconic song from that game. But that moment where the song kicks in is really good. (laughs) really really good
2: the best part about daredevil is right when that part kicks in is also where the game checkpoints
1: you so (laughs) it's so good you wonder why there's a mission after it and i like that mission a lot but it's just like after that (laughs) you think to yourself wait this game has been
2: suspiciously bereft of tunnel runs (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: also seven includes aircraft tuning as well and it has a new tree layout where you'll unlock aircraft parts and then sometimes you need to get certain parts to unlock the next part of the tree which might be an aircraft and then you can buy the special weapons for stuff individually
2: it's pretty appealing i think we didn't really mention about six or seven multiplayer is a thing in both of those competitive multiplayer it's really fun it's also got a very high barrier to entry
0: people who are good at ace combat are very good at ace combat they probably hear me talking about oh this is hard and this is hard no that's not hard at all I'm like well this is going to sound kind of condescending, but like, I play other games also. So I'm not really good at any game. So, like, I don't know if the Nier community is really going to care if I'm like, ah, I can do counterattacks in Nier. Like, I feel like that's maybe the only game I'm like good at. And it's a game where I was like, that game plays like crap. I hate it. While <laughs> the fans like the story, you know it's like, oh, counterattacks in Nier. Tell me
2: more soon. <laughs> I just want to be like, hey, well, yeah, man, I'm not in the Air Force, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're going to play the multiplayer in 7, do not go for the highest bracket, because there's a point value assigned to everything. If you end up in the highest bracket, which means you're using a lot of really powerful parts on a powerful plane, then you'll end up with people who are using the post-game, like, superplane with the railgun, and they'll just kill you instantly as the match starts for easy points.
0: 7's story also gets a lot darker than 5's does. You know, it's not as emotionally involved, but it hits you out of nowhere, and it's not really dwelled upon.
1: The third act of that game is incredibly unexpected.
0: Yeah, I think it's earned. One of the more interesting things about the game, since it's set further in the timeline, is that planes, they have a selection of weapons on them, but it's not the same as what was in Ace Combat 5 because they're further in the future. So that laser gun that was on the Falcon is now on like an FA 18 or something. I think that one has the rail gun, actually. But the fact that I'm saying this, I can't remember whether it's the rapid fire laser, the long distance laser, or the rail gun. That is on the plane. But if you like the cool sci-fi weaponry bleeding into the, the setting, then it's got plenty of that, too. Again, war is bad. Yes, we know war is bad, but also real good. <laughs>
2: war is bad, but planes are good. But drones are bad planes.
0: If a person's not in a plane, it's more bad than regular war with a person in a plane. But the most important thing is ending war so people can fly planes without war but not commercial airliners. I mean, I guess it's probably not as cool to fly commercial airliners as to fly a fighter jet. I, I can see that. But you can also fly planes if you want to fly planes. <laughs> yeah, Ace Combat 7. You know, it also came out the very beginning of 2019. So it missed a lot of Game of the Year list. It made some, though. And even though it switched to the Unreal Engine over the proprietary one by Project Aces, it still runs really well. It looks great. The, the ground looks good, finally.
2: <laughs> Also, it, uh, it had the biggest catharsis factor of any game in 2019, because prior to its launch, people were really excited for the Jump Force beta. <laughs> Constantly getting on to Bandai, being like, why are you talking about the dumb plane game? I want to hear about Goku. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's that working out for you?
0: I mean, if you like Goku, then you actually got plenty of good Goku <laughs>
2: games recently.
0: You're actually, you've actually been very well served if you're a Goku fan.
1: Also. I think we brought it up earlier, but the DLC is... These has some good missions, but, like,
2: God, they are hard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I use the DLC planes to do the DLC missions. Like, this is practically cheating, yet I am getting annihilated.
2: (laughs) Like I said, they call one of the missions 10 million relief plan because that's how many missiles it will take to take on that mission.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, the villain, that one's really weird for all the times they try to give pathos or anything to the villains. He literally does like the wah ha laugh for how evil he is. <laughs> good place to open to our next discussion, because Seven in the DLC, the character who's like the anchor character for that story, has an AI he talks to. They also mention the space program at the end and the lore is over. And that is a good opening for them to go with a remake of Ace Combat 3.
2: Yeah, so Ace Combat 3 in North America, and I think also in Europe, got kind of a botched release. It trimmed a lot of the stuff that made Ace Combat 3 really unique. Took out a lot of the story. Ace Combat 3 Electrosphere in Japan is a trip. The serial experiments lane of fucking Ace Combat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When we say it removes the story, we mean this game did branching paths.
2: Yeah, I think there's what, like five or six endings?
1: Yeah, and only one made it outside of Japan.
0: Additionally, the game has a very cool, like Y2K style fake internet in it. Y2K, the aesthetic is actually making a comeback, so now is like the perfect time to redeploy the game with actually the same aesthetic. There are things like the story presentation is all still shot cutscenes, and the character designs are all anime style characters. It's not really in a distinctly Ace Combat style. So, I think it would be a great opportunity to re explore that idea and also tighten up the mechanics. Like, it, it plays decently, but they've made improvements to the model, and I think utilizing what they've learned in a futuristic setting could work really well.
1: Plus, the entire story is about, like, corporate warfare, so, anti capitalist, it's a nice way to go after anti war. <laughs> it also has the luxury of not needing to use real life jet fighters. The original planes in these games
0: look really cool. I don't really see why you need to license the real planes. I feel like Project Asus does think that real-life planes are cool. It's getting less and less popular to have those names show up on your games, for good reason.
2: One thing we didn't mention about Assault Horizon is that it had a plane in it designed by the mechanical designer for the Macross series, and it's a pretty cool design. (laughs)
0: You know, some fictional planes look dumb, but also the A6E Interceptor looks dumb. Yeah, I've, I've been coming for the Interceptor this whole time. I don't care. Fuck that plane. <laughs> That's what you get when you license real planes? A6E Interceptor? Looks like a penguin that fell
1: over. Plus the um, futuristic UAVs in uh, Ace Combat 7 looks really good.
0: Also, like I mentioned, how many of these people were in Gundam Rising the Ashes on the Dreamcast, and I remember I was playing, like, this is pretty much the best original Gundam story that isn't a Gundam game <laughs> and they don't have to use the Gundam license but I think they could do a game with big robots and like use their world building skills their mechanical design skills like all very proven talents they have to make a game in that genre like that genre had a, a pretty sizable comeback even if people cooled on Daemon X Machina a little the fact that they were so excited about it in the first place shows you that you know there's a place for those kinds of games I think they could knock it out of the park. So, if you want to play Ace Combat 5, the PS2 version, you can get it for like $5 if you just want the disc. And I will say the packaging, even though Kazutoki Kono worked on it also, uh, it's pretty bland. Like, it's pretty straightforward. It's not that exciting, though, okay?
2: It's a plane flying towards you.
0: Yeah. If you want a complete copy in, like, okay condition, it's like 25 bucks.
2: If you want the PS4 version, you gotta solve the riddle of Anubis.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's locked in a cyber vault for no dollars. Maybe they'll eventually do it. They'll eventually re-release it on PS4 for you to download. Which should probably be $15. It's literally a port of the PS2 version. That's kind of stretched out. But yeah, even still, it's cool.
5: We mentioned a lot of
0: details about the game, obviously. But there's so much more. So much more dialogue and little things that we didn't include. We included some of the little things so that you know what they're like. But there's more. Like, there's constantly dialogue throughout the game. There's the experience of playing it yourself. Even if you know what happens then you can appreciate the foreshadowing more. It's good. Go play Yeah,
2: go play Ace Combat 5. <laughs> play 4 and then 5 and then 0 and then 7.
0: 0 is kind of expensive second hand. I think I got a copy for like 25 bucks or something and that was a super good deal. Like it was absurdly good that I got it for that much money. Aftermarket prices fluctuate because I said near got cheaper when we did the episode and then it became a billion dollars because people love the Oco Tower.
2: <laughs> Also, emulate Electrosphere and get the fan translation.
0: If you want to play some games that are similar, maybe a little more accessible. Skyrogue is out on PC and on Switch. That's a game that like randomly generates missions. It's got a very lo-fi aesthetic. It goes on sale fairly often. And The PC version has a ton of mods, so you can play as a whole
2: bunch of different ships if you want. You can literally play as the Falcon in the This
0: <laughs> There's also Sphere 4th. Uh, you can get that on Steam. That game... Looks like someone just made a PS1 game run at 60 frames a second. It looks really dated. Like, really dated. <laughs> and the story is told just by like anime characters having dialogue scenes for the briefings and during the missions. Mechanically, it's not as tight as Ace Combat, but it's still a complete game with a decent chunk of missions in it. For most people, you could look at it and say, this looks like crap, and I wouldn't fight you on it. <laughs> After that is Air Force Delta Strike. This is also a PS2 game. It's by Konami, actually. Therefore, the translations done by Jeremy Blaustein, who worked on Metal Gear Solid. I didn't get that far in it. Like, I liked it. I just got distracted by other stuff at the time when I first picked it up. I mentioned the route system in Ace Combat X, Skies of Deception. This actually has something similar, but you also have to manage how much time you spend away from base before you head back to like resupply. Sometimes enemies will try to move on the base. Similar to Area 88, also known as UN Squadron on snes in that way but there's like an overall tactical layer to it i mean it's a game that's so unconcerned with being believable that in a game where the latter part involves you going to space there's an old guy character who perhaps looking for some romanticism in the midst of modern war flies only propeller planes in space (laughs) it's a silly game but i think it's pretty neat it's not super expensive there's also Aero Elite Combat Academy. If you wanted something way more simmy, like there are options for whether you will black out from high G forces and stuff like that. Different planes have different capabilities, like significantly. I mean, its Japanese name is Aero Dancing, and that's because there are some missions that are like flight competitions. I'm surprised by how not arcadey it is, considering it's by Sega AM2. That means the soundtrack is good and. Even on its most arcadey settings, it's still much more of a sim than Ace Combat on its most involved settings. <laughs> That's kind of a warning, but it's also kind of a recommendation. It's super cheap, but it's neat. Also, I threw Armored Core 4Answer on here.
1: I actually have a copy of this game, but I've never touched it.
0: Its story doesn't hit anywhere near like Ace Combat level. Like I'd say the story's maybe about as well-told as Ace Combat 4. It. It's a little more of an interesting story on the whole, but... Armored Core is a series I think that could benefit a lot more from Ace Combat-style storytelling. Like, I remember I was playing Armored Core Last Draven Portable recently, and, like, the setup for that game is so cool, but all the setup is done in these email, like, text file, world-building encyclopedia things. This could really use a person saying this stuff to make it feel cool. If you like fighting something that feels like the equivalent of super weapons when you're already in a giant, super-fast robot, that's the game for you. So, that concludes our discussion of Ace Combat 5, The Unsung War. I want to thank Bo Hamtress and ICAT. Thank you for having me on.
2: Thank you as well. So, Bo, do you have anything you want to plug? I mean, just play Ace Combat 7. <laughs> like, get Ace Combat 7 to show them, hey, like, Ace Combat is good. And also, uh, Jump Force, I guess. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Otherwise, you can just follow me
1: on Twitter, I guess. It's at Doc Hospital. I don't really have anything going on right now.
0: I Cat, how about you? Anything to
1: plug? Yeah, just definitely play Ace Combat 7, and I guess fuck Goku. <laughs> <laughs> you can just follow me on Twitter. It's I N D S T R. There's no U, but C T I B L C A T. I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> and you can follow me as always at Beamsplash X on
3: Twitter.
0: Like I said, all my tweets are good. Twitter has started using that one viral tweet I made. That was inspired by someone else's joke format on, like, merchandise for stuff without asking
1: me, so (laughs) I guess it's official. I don't know what better praise you can give to yourself than, I was so good at a joke, it got stolen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can follow the show at ThoughtABTGames. Not that many tweets on there. You can look at the gaps and dates on there because it's pretty much just when we record for the show and when we're going to stream. But if you follow there, then you'll know first because that's usually where I post it. I do also retweet it on my own account because I have more followers than my podcast will ever have because jokes are more successful than two and a half plus hour discussions of games that haven't been discussed, so they're not as popular. (laughs) You can find the blog for this show at wethoughtaboutgames.com. That'll redirect you to the blog page where you can find links to every episode with the episode art, links to any recordings, all the different places you can listen to it, also, I think I still have the link for rating stuff on iTunes on there, but you can't rate a show that comes out once or twice a year enough that it gets high up in the rankings, and I'm not going to change how I do anything, even if it shot all the way up to number one. That would be pretty weird if that happened, but I also wouldn't change anything.
2: Well, if it makes it to number one, then it means you don't need to change anything. Yeah, exactly.
0: Knew I had you on the show for a reason.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep, not for the insight, just for the for the ass-kissing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So thanks again, Bo. Thanks, ICAT. Thank you for listening.
1: Have a good night, everyone. Have a good night.
0: And keep thinking.